What's up, what's up? Welcome back, everybody, to Actually Podcast. I'm Chris. I'm DJ. And in this episode, we're going to be covering episode 9 of John Verbeke's Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. We're live on YouTube. We're live on Twitch. We barely made it to uh, broadcast time. We did. We just made it. <laughs> just made it. Yeah. All right, we're going live on Facebook now. What's up, Facebook fam? How y'all doing today? Welcome everybody back to our shared learning journey, this watch party where we get to enjoy John Verbeke's Awakening from the Meaning Crisis lectures. It's a 50-part series. It's absolutely groundbreaking, cutting-edge understandings of cognitive science, as well as the understanding of mindfulness practices such as meditation, deep contemplation, states of transcendence, uh, what we call enlightenment, and... Uh, you know, we get deep into all kinds of fun stuff from shamans and psychedelics to the art of uh, being attentive and understanding how our consciousness operates and in doing so, understanding how we got to where we are today and how we may awaken from the meaning crisis that humanity is in now. Our modal confusion. Our modal confusion. <clears throat> yes, that mistaken uh, process wherein we take the having mode as something that can fulfill our being needs. So our having mode is when we identify something that we need for survival, for instance, like water. And so we know how to manipulate and control and utilize a cup. But then we have these being needs of belonging, of growth, of self-mastery, self-ascension, actualization, uh, relationship growth, the development of artistic creations, and all these things come from this being need, this being mode that we have. So we have these two existential modes, having mode and being mode. And we are very easily marketed to by corporations that will take advantage of this psychology understanding that they can cause us to mistake our having needs for being needs and they can try and give us things that we think that by having them we're going to fulfill these other deep existential needs that we have of belonging and attraction and all of these other and the growth processes and exploration and and with our sciences and how we view the world we can have all the knowledge of it we have great images of Pluto and far off places and we have the knowledge of atoms and how they work but we don't we're lacking in the being and like there's we don't have an understanding of meaning with this scientific well I, I, I won't say all of us but we you know as a species right now have become very science and secular mm-hmm. uh, that does nothing well for be- very for little needs, for very the little, being you know, and growing because we're not really growing the more we you know we're the learning need to self transcend and to understand how to be in the world how to operate in the yeah. world uh, versus what is the world made of science is great for understanding how the yeah. world is made yeah, of not saying get rid you know get rid of it how to break things down put them back the together build and engineer new creations but as far as our being need is concerned we need to know how to be in the world we need to understand the growth process that allows us to most ably engage as agents 
in the wider arenas that we find ourselves in. So how can we learn to conform better to reality as it is in these through these existential modes by being able to delineate between them and observe ourselves when we're mistakenly utilizing one in place of the other. So that allow you know mindfulness practices that allow us to transcend our mental processes and see them as they operate within ourselves, like the process of insight that we're going to learn about in this episode, allow us to transcend. So there's these transcending practices that allow us to uh, better incorporate ourselves with reality. And it seems... hmm, I keep having this fleeting thought that keeps jumping into my head and it just jumped right back out. Uh, Well, we're looking for meaning, right? We're looking for... And Verveke described in the last episode. Ah, it's about technologies. Okay. We've really developed our external technologies, the having technologies, you know, like you have the Library of Alexandria in your pocket. Mm-hmm. But we've forgotten about the psycho – well, I won't say forgotten, but neglected the psycho technologies that got us here. Mm-hmm. Because um, there has – you know, we've – our yes. technology has expanded greatly and far out pa- – out or is outpacing our psychotechnological growth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, far outpacing our there, humanity. There is there is some drag though, because like as technology goes, it kind of drags you with it. But mm-hmm. you know the fact that you know, deep thinking it. and you know critical thinking skills and these things aren't taught in earlier education uh, is a sign of that. You know, you're taught how to you know functionally use a lot of things and use information to you know get a good career do this, do that, have this, have that, you know, right. um, you have a career. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but, but we don't want to confuse like the, with, with the being, the sense of belonging, yeah. this, the sense. And I don't, I don't think the, the self-actualization, the liberal the development art. of a relationship. And I don't think the liberal arts, like, as in how, like, like I, I love the liberal arts, you know, like theater, music, all that stuff. But I think there needs to be something else that you know we need to develop a place that we can do the learning of this type of stuff mm-hmm. um because that like it's usually been like philosophy and other stuff like that in poetry you put that in the liberal arts department and all those you know hippie band kids and theater geeks can go hang out by themselves but it's it's it shouldn't be that it should be something else the discipline should, should be more interrelated and there are places you know like there are professors that teach this stuff but is like if you're I don't know if you're like a nursing major, are you going to go take that high level philosophy, whatever class? Well, probably not. And you probably can't take it unless you take it as an elective, but you know, it's like, and you know, probably should, I won't say not have it institutionalized, but make it, you know, like what instant, you know, personal institutions kind of something more like marriage. Traditionalized. Yeah. Yeah. So that there's like a natural teaching that runs through. So we use we've used myths for this for yeah. ages, and since now we're deconstructing everything in this phase of deconstruction and super construction, we've taken apart the old myths, the old wisdom stories that were perennial, as Verveke put it, that that help reveal recurring patterns and tell us how to live now in these times, um, and. Many of those stories directly relate to times of civilizational and broad social collapse, and they help us understand how to navigate through times like these. So being able to tap back in and see, see these things, as, these myths, as very wise, not just 
simple parables with moral stories, but deep wisdom about how to live through even the hardest of times, not just for the individual, but even for the larger collective, um, are very helpful to us. So in, in the process of our deconstruction, I hope that we're not throwing too much you know, out in the process. We definitely that, wanna, don't throw the, ba- don't throw baby, the baby, baby out with, with the, the bathwater. Bath yeah. I was about to say, don't throw the bath out with the baby water. And I was like, man, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> <laughs> the bath out with the baby Liz water. Dex- <laughs> yeah, there we go. Oh, yeah. No, yeah, um, you just reminded me of Deus Ex. Mm, the idea of the god and the machine and that old that uh, old PC game Deus Ex, which was a classic. That game was so good. That's a whole other podcast for you guys. Oh so. man, yeah, like a playthrough of that. If we can find one of the old CD ROMs of that, and I did find. I got to remember this guy's YouTube channel where he has these deep existential philosophical expositions going on while showing some of the great classic games as he's just kind of like journeying through the beauty of the different worlds and it's various things from Red Dead to you know deus ex and games like that yeah you know games are a great way to encode um messages and ideas and i don't story man i don't mean like messages but like you know like you got a message this is what the story (laughs) is going through you know like is but also the mythic end of it you know like or at least like we leave clues for each other out there well that's the point of art art is to encode ideas into you through your senses Mm -hmm. so when you do it visually you call it photography or painting or sculpting Mm -hmm. or something like that like if you look at old paintings there's information in those paintings Mm -hmm. even cave paintings it's a set of information like these animals exist here there was this many people here Mm -hmm. you know um and then music encodes it with poetry to you know music well poetry if you have the lyrical aspect of it but Mm -hmm. um yeah, and then you have video games like Deus Ex. Like Deus Ex, if you ever get the chance to play it, talk to everybody as long as you can. Go through all the different possibilities, and, and, and there's it, a lot of different playthrough styles. Oh, that was the, uh, kind of the first game it. that really fleshed out. Like you could have that kind of uh, thief style. What would you? Yeah, that game was good too. That was a good game. You could too, totally yeah. be a ninja and not kill anybody except for the one guy that you have. You to could kill. choose to be totally. Yeah. Yeah, to, to not murder anybody the entire time. Yeah, you, you just, just use little train things and, and zap them, or yeah, you know, yeah. you could just sneak around them. You can hack. Now, when it came to robots, though, I blew them things up. I didn't play around. Those were those they were, were dangerous. Yeah, yeah. yeah, they were worse than the humans. <laughs> oh man, yeah. Except for the cyber humans, like your guy was. Yeah, that guy had to face a lot of existential issues. Well, sure, he was from inside the machine, and through yeah. you looking out what his brother was doing and then the species that we were going through this deep crisis oh, yeah. it's a good dystopian story basically a good if you've ever read 1984 or brave new world or any, anything like that mm-hmm. dystopian or gotten into stories like you know conspiracy theories yeah they help pre- prepare us for yeah. the future they they uh, wrestle with deep psychological and philosophical conundrums in a story set in a different environment that is detached enough but yet familiar enough for us to be able to see ourselves through it and 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 i guess it was like episode one or episode two um we went over what is it uh flow state induction mechanisms or something Mm -hmm. like that that induce the flow state Mm -hmm. well video games are one of those things absolutely then you add a story narrative to it Mm um hey you know we're drawn to video games and we like video games might as well like make something that you know, teaches you how to think outside the box. It's another art form, that's for sure. 
Well, the, the Zelda games were always good for that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you just had the fairy. Zelda Metroid. Just like, hey, over here. And you're like, I don't understand. You just keep circling this thing, and I don't it's know It's funny how do. addicted we are to problem solving uh, yeah. as humans that we can make games like this, and they're super challenging. You have to do the same thing over and over and over again sometimes because that part is so hard, yet we are super drawn to that optimization process. Mm-hmm. makes us feel good. And I think we're getting that positive feedback because the biology knows this is going to help me be attuned to survival. If I'm optimizing my ability to be attentive in complex, difficult moments, then that's good for my long-term life existence. So it's, you know, you get this positive feedback. And that's really cool how that's built into us. So it, it feels actually very, it feels very good to go through this series um, because it's rather than a turning away from the great existential crises within ourselves and occurring in the wider world, it's a direct facing of it, but it's a deep consideration too. And it's allowing us to kind of seat ourselves in this moment and patiently, though accurately, respond. And, uh, That's an yeah. optimistic way of looking at it. Yeah, yeah, you know, we need all the optimism we can get. And, yeah, yeah. you know, there is a certain kind of hard one post hard one post naive and um, post cynicism mode of hope as an orientation to life as an action that we can take I believe you can look at everything and then you can see the great shadows that humanity possesses again within our own selves and then in the wider world and as they manifest in the wider world how unsettling that can be I I do very much I know we've spoken of this previously feel that this is probably fundamental to the anxiety so many people are experiencing in the world right now yeah this that we feel that our species is at a interesting place we're building towards well, some kind of climax or we're at a peak moment of our story and it's definitely a point where there seems to be different directions that we can go and we, we really want to choose which well, direction we go from here whether or not we're you know directly conscious of it we're still responding you know, physically, mentally, spiritually, to those circumstances, right? To this, this crush, this crunch, whatever this is, but also like expanding out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I'd, I'd venture to say that the negative expressions of discontent and gen- just general craziness and all this stuff are is a symptomatic result of feeling it without being able yeah, to well, look at it and define it mm-hmm. and yeah. talk about it. You sure. know, Cause like if you, you yeah, know, that causes stress if you can see the, the wave system. coming, yeah. great. You, know, you can dive into it or ride it. But like, if you can't even see that there's water there, but it's you just feel this shadow. thing pulling you into it and it's just getting darker. Yeah. It's just getting darker. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No. Um, and you can kind of, you know, it's there, but you don't really want to look at it enough to understand it entirely yeah i think a lot of us have been in that mode mm. and that's happened and that's natural you know that's natural well, sure. do Some, too. you know when something's you, coming to get you like and it's, it's like needs, emer- need time to compute need time to compute yeah pause, just just, need time or to compute. just get away this from it moving so fast just just get are, away from accelerating it accelerating technologically in our capacity and then our danger to ourselves as well and to the planet um, you know whatever one believes about global warming for instance we do definitely know that we are poisoning our oceans we're poisoning our soil can't drink out of the rivers and the streams anymore we got to be better stewards of this great miracle this great gift that we've been given that we call life 
we still don't even know what it, it is. And we also and have so to, that's where we need these wisdom traditions that help give us a root and an understanding. Well, uh, we need to be that they got to be imaginative and creative. Well, we need to be malleable enough to they also to shift exactly with the accurate. shift yeah. with the natural changes of the universe as mm-hmm. well, and constantly rising to a higher level of understanding is one of those things that helps you become malleable because you can see yeah. more of the picture and move around and maybe yeah. see on the horizon that like in the next 10 in the next 10 years you know this area will be a little bit drier or a little bit wetter or you know only way where, where are we going to move our people right. it's it, it's no wonder the medicine man and other you mm-hmm. know high, high level thinkers within the you know the tribes and groupings of people were the ones consulted with like where are we going in conjunction with the people who go out in the field and see yeah, things because they, they practiced all kinds of different techniques constantly of, uh, allowing them to reframe yeah. their perception of existence and, and see the causative mm-hmm. you know and there's so much to this great mystery those. that if you can play on the periphery and the only way to do that is with your imagination you do come out with very dreamlike symbolism and that's why our myths are so full of that kind of d- deep strange allegory And that's why stories are so powerful for us. Even though we can do fictionalized stories with animals talking, it still can be meaningful to us because it's helping us orient into how to live. What do you mean animals talking? But there's talking? so much that's unknown. Absurd. We don't know how the universe begins. We don't know how far it goes. We don't know if there's other life out there, yet, though we know there's trillions of stars with planets probably just like our own in many places. At least in a habitable zone, not just like our own, but... Gosh, I mean, there's enough stars. There's well, enough room out there that there could be some almost weird there's similarities. There's the potential. And then vast with changes and differences. There's the potential, which is one of the words that we learned. Like, yeah, we get that know. from Aristotle. Yeah, And then there's the actual. There's the potential for life out there. Unfortunately for us, like we can't say for sure if there is until we see it act. Mm-hmm. So until we see it act and know what it actually is. Yeah. We don't know, but the potential's there. Yeah. There's definitely the potential. Actually, the potential. And how to be in, in a world like this. We've come up with some really powerful characters well, and youth. archetypes for demonstrating how we can do that. Well, the and, then, and then these transcendent ideals that we can live up to that are beyond our comprehension, yet we know it's better than whatever goodness we've seen in the world, that there must be more out there because of how limitless existence, in fact, seems to be to us. Well, yeah, and... So how do you describe that but with a story with a myth well the universe has primed itself to exist like us well as us um well we have myths about the you know the creation of the universe as well i wonder if there's like a i know it wouldn't be like a one-to-one but you know how we have myths as thinking creatures is reflecting but what are the myths of you know the the cosmos the universe mm-hmm. like like what would the mm-hmm. equivalent be because there are things that draw things together or blow them apart or take different types of matter combine it to make other things mm-hmm. um you know from the births of stars to the an ancient Taoist story yeah. about the forces of chaos and order <laughs> and I, I, and I know i know it's absurd but what, what what are the myths that the universe has created for itself to make this that's an interesting I, 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 don't, I don't really have an answer for it, but it's something to ponder. Um, help break the framing a little bit. You know, it is absurd because it's like, well, the universe isn't a thinking thing. Well, I tend to think it's doesn't think like us. 
when you exist on the frame of billions it's of years. It's omnipresent. It always has been and always will be, it's so it seems, because it's timeless. There's a point where it began, but that's when time and space begin. And what was before that? And was there a before that? Could there be a before that? No, but and if it's always been, then it, and it's omnipresent, and time is something that burst out. I think it's a scaling of not just size, but like speed of time and by that i mean rate of decay um it seems that it's here let me get through this though so you have the big bang theory so everything was this one thing well that is the limit of our our ability to measure that point that's small uh, like the smallest point one can measure is the plank length it's the smallest of the small of the small well, what's inside that? Well, the whole universe was inside that mm-hmm. at one point in time. So the universe is also inside of something that we think of as really, 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 really big. And we can't even see the outer edge of our universe because there hasn't been enough time for the light at the edge of our universe to get here. Yeah, the really big, bigness that the universe is in is actually the universe. So it, it seems like at any point... Expanding in this nothingness and a void, the perfect void that has no space and time. We don't know. But is it really a void? Like, it's, it's a void says there's nothing it's a void there, but it doesn't be. That must be so perfectly empty that it has room for every potentiality. <laughs> you know, it's, it's so it's the paradoxical nature of this thing that we would call God, this generative, organizing, and destructive force all at once. Well, interestingly enough, in the universal projections that I've seen, there's something called the great attractor and the great. It's not the great repeller, but there's, I think, two other forces that are pushing, you know, like galaxy clusters away. And then mm-hmm. there's another force that's sucking galaxy clusters in. Yeah, right. Um, but I think it's, a, it's so we're right in the middle of those two points. We're right in the middle of this. So absolutely vague. Uh, they previously, the like recently, I think, potentially disproved the Big Bang Theory now. So it's a whole wide open game well, at this point. Yeah, and, and so when I think of the Big Bang, it's Once just again, it's, the Big Bang is the... There's there's some discovery recently in physics where they've pretty much disproved that, that pro- it didn't, must not have happened that way. There, the expansion of the universe yeah. we thought oh, we were yeah. recording isn't happening. The yeah, way we thought it, it was. It's probably more of a... Everything breathing. isn't tracing back the way we thought. So, But it's probably more of a breathing thing. But I could Maybe. I could, I've heard that analogy. I like that. Um, I could still, but I like the idea also. So basically, to get us back to where how we got here was, I think the thing can't have a personality, and it has always been and always will be, and it's also at the same time begin as nothing and is learning about itself through the growth of universes and through beings like us that reflect back upon itself, and it's doing both of those at the same time. It always has been and always will be, and it's also the story of becoming at the same time. I guess like how we interact with the or how the inter how interactions in the universe happen is a scaling thing. So to us, an atom is very small, but the space between an electron and an atom, relatively speaking, is unfathomably huge. Empty spaces in between the two. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- a type of awareness and intelligence that can't even necessarily like see us even with its greatest technologies just as we can't see quarks or whatever makes up the components of atoms you know what's that difference 
like how do we even measure awareness once, at that level? It's that once the ability for it to be everything that always has been and always will be, but also to simultaneously forget and live a trillion well, I lives think it's at just, once. I think it's just all at one, one size one. and everything. And then as we move yeah, through it, right. we're like going that. in and out of it. I like that, yeah. And so, of course, we thought That's the Big Bang because we're looking in and we're like – The Kabbalist's way of delineating between these different levels of transcendence or the ultimate – all the way up to the ultimate and these levels yeah. of awareness well, these higher states high realms states of understanding of and, realms and, and of consciousness um, and you know there's like in order to think like a galaxy you have to release yourself into the galaxy well I, mean, I don't know about you Hinduism I can't do this, this but way, you can do well. it with yeah. psychedelics meditations mm -hmm. other things oh, and yeah. you can practice it getting bigger and bigger and bigger in your, and then start thinking in larger scales or even into the, the smaller scale. scales. Well, it's the back and forth yeah. process of that that is actually the process of non-duality yeah. uh, te techniques like meditation. Yeah. It's truly, it's not just going in, it's out and in at the same time. Uh, and it's until back and forth. Until and this is why, you know, there, there's so many chants and there's so many methods of meditation that involve deeply an understanding of how breath works and I just lost my train of thought. I had another one that was in my head gotcha. that had to do with, okay, I'm losing it. I'm losing it. That means it's time to get into the episode, I think. Yeah. Um, we can probably catch you guys up a little bit, but Vivek is going to do a good job of that. So we know that we're going to talk about Sati, which was to bring into mind to remember a mode of being. Yeah. And so it's, it's remembering a very deep sense of the word. Yeah, so last week was the sati, which is the uh, the participatory to remember. Yeah, like wake the wake-up kind of remembering, yeah. participatory. Yes. And then there, we'll be going into the pasana, which is the insight, actually. I yes. think this episode is yes. insight. And like yes. he, he'll sum it up better than we can for the most part. Mm -hmm. um, I, I pretty much got the same points. Yes, the, yeah, so basically in India during this time of the axial revolution, mm -hmm. while it was going on in Greece and India – this what there was these new psycho technologies that were coming about in addition to the development of language and literacy mm -hmm. and coinage and understandings of s simple mathematics that were changing the ways that we frame the world as cultures as whole peoples we then begin to in the east develop these mindfulness mm -hmm. practices and not mindfulness tm as it's often yeah, depicted right. and le learned about and nowadays it's been a, a little bit over marketed but in the term of actual true meditation in the oh. sense of true meditation so uh they, yeah they developed these psycho technologies these technologies of such as uh various yogas and meditative disciplines to allow us to cultivate an awakening from the meaning crisis to to allow us to reawaken and recover our sense of beingness and avoid modal confusion mm -hmm. by recognizing the difference between our being and having modes. And, yeah, I think that's a good good enough summation. Do you have anything to add to that? I don't know. It's, it's a soft vigilance. It's just Vigilance. It's uh, intimate contact. Mm, intimate the, contact. The not too hard, not too soft. So, like, the last episode, you know, he, he visited Zooming. again on the – the musicians on the river and is the masters being like, well, too, too tight is not good. And too yeah. loose is not too good. You have to have 
the point. So, so Buddha discovering the middle path. Yeah, was instead his awakening. of and <clears throat> up into him discovering that he was still doing all these things within the have, which is like still having himself, but mm-hmm. trying to make himself. And going into yeah. asceticism and self-denial. Yeah, yeah. He was actually still framing the idea yeah, on, on, have, the sel- of ha- on the idea of having a self. Yeah. Which was an illusion. Yeah. The sense of self that we have, this psychological image, self-image that we develop over our lives is not who we are. It's just a set of descriptive factors. And it's, in fact, something that we also act through but is malleable. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah. Mm. And that's, that's helpful to be able to see because we're then – we're not pulled around by our minds so much. We can watch and see the mind and actually utilize our thinking in a much different way to where it's not something that is causing emotional reactions within ourselves. That, that yeah. Then we get into these recursive trains of thought repeating over and over and increase our suffering or sense of anxiety. And well, It's concentration, but the right kind of right concentration. concentration. Yes. So the process, the practice of soft vigilance, yeah. not just paying attention. Um, but being attentive, you could say. So use it, utilizing a soft vigilance to consistently renew interest as the mind starts to think again in the process of, for instance, meditation. You use the soft vigilance just to return to the being mode, to being present, to feeling the sensations of sight and sound around you. So it's about tuning in, mm-hmm. getting into an inter-essay, being very interested with what we're attending to. And it's something you can practice and practice mm-hmm. is optimization. Yes. Um, this helps the world become increasingly brighter and more salient to us. Yeah. And we can coordinate these various elements in unison. And that's the process of worldview attunement. And so how does that give us improved insight and help us to de- develop insight and mindfulness practices is what we're going to learn now. How, how is that actually working cognitively? But yeah, let's jump this on is in, gonna, guys. It's going to be a fun episode. This is a great I, I episode. I like this one. There's, this one's a, really there's good. a lot of this going on. Yeah, and this is where this... I, mean I, was, I texted him the other day, and I was like, this is where it starts to get good. And I was like, I mean, it's already good, yeah, but yeah, it but really, he's, yeah. he's filled us in now and everything that we need to know so that he can get us into this territory now, and we're going to start going deeper. This is exciting, fun stuff. All right, so here we go. Episode 9 of Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. <laughs> Welcome back to Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. Uh, so last time we continued looking through uh, the myth of uh, Siddhartha's uh, awakening, and we talked about uh, him leaving the palace, the having mode, uh, his attempt to rediscover, uh, recover uh, the being mode, and <clears throat> the difficulty he faced uh, in per- uh, pursuing uh, self-denial as passionately as he had produ- uh, pursued self-indulgence and why this ultimately failed because it's still uh, working within the same operation of trying to have uh, a self. And then we looked at Siddhartha's commitment to the middle path, an attempt to overcome that through the cultivation of mindfulness. And then we began our exploration of mindfulness. We first looked at what it meant, sati. It's this deep remembering, this recovering of the being mode that leads to a fundamental transformation and alleviates 
the, uh, the existential anxiety and distress that Siddhartha was experiencing and potentially is on offer for us. And then we started to take a look at that, uh, uh, the, the practice of mindfulness and its attempt to address at least an individual or personal experience of a meaning crisis. And we were doing that because we were trying to investigate uh, more broadly uh, the mindfulness revolution and how that is a uh, response to the meaning crisis within the West. We began by noting uh, that uh, the study of mindfulness um, is misleading in some ways, the scientific study, uh, because it begins with a feature list. And as we've noted multiple times, feature lists leave out the IDOS, the Structural Functional Organization. In order to do that, uh, we brought out uh, four sort of central characteristics in the feature list, being present, not judging, uh, uh, insightfulness, and uh, reduced reactivity or an increased equanimity. And then we noted that what we need to do is to make distinctions between the types of features, between those that are states that we can engage in, actions we can perform, and traits we can cultivate. Once we did that, we opened up the possibility of asking causal questions. How can the practice of being present, for example, produce the trait of insightfulness? And then we also could ask constitutive questions, What's the relationship, the part-whole relationship, for example, between being present and and not judging? That being said, uh, we then also noted that we have to replace the language of training with the language of explaining. They operate according to different principles and for different goals. And we began that by starting to ask, what does it mean to be present? And then we talked about concentration we talked about different senses of that and the kind of soft vigilance that's actually conducive of insight, uh, discussed by Alan Langer and others. This kind of involvement uh, uh, that is very much about conforming to, be inter-essay, becoming deeply interested, uh, connected to uh, the, the structural functional organization of something. We to- noted that that took us into discussion of uh, paying attention, and all the while remembering this idea that we got from Siddhartha Tatama, the story about tuning, getting the right tuning, optimization. And we started to talk about attention, and uh, made the argument that attention is not very well served by the spotlight metaphor. Well, while that metaphor does give us uh, the idea of attention-altering salience, the metaphor misses a lot of what attention is doing. We began to investigate what's missing by making use of Christopher Mole's idea that attention is not a direct action you perform by walking, but it's something you do by modifying something else, by optimizing something else. That's why you can successfully pay attention by doing many disparate and different kinds of things. You can pay attention by optimizing your seeing into looking, by optimizing your hearing into listening, uh, by optimizing your seeing and listening into a coordinated uh, tracking of some, what somebody is saying, like you're doing right now. All of those are different ways in which uh, we're paying attention. So what we needed was an understanding of attention that could capture uh, the way it's an optimization strategy, which lines up with its tuning idea and how such optimization might be linked to a response to existential modal confusion and the alleviation of the suffering found therein. So I want to continue that discussion about uh, attention and start to uh, point towards what might be going on. If you remember, 
Uh, Mole talks about this idea of cognitive unison, getting a bunch of processes uh, to share a goal, uh, to be coordinated together in some fashion. Now, he leaves it abstract like that, and um, I think we should try and investigate a little bit more further, more concretely, uh, what that might mean. And there's a lot... Attention is one of the hottest areas in cognitive science right now. There's a lot of good work uh, done by Frank Wu, by Sebastian Watzel, uh, Christopher Mole. Just many people are t- talking about this, and I'm not pretending to canvas all of that rich and very fertile, and and very uh, like it's 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 very creative. It's advancing. I'm not trying to do that. I'm trying to pick up on some key themes here, because what we want to understand is how can mindfulness train attention so as to cause more insight, to make one more dispositionally capable of insight. Because all, all, after all, and we've talked about this before, we're not talking, when we're talking about wisdom, we're not talking about an individual insight. We're talking about a systematic set of insights that are mutually related to a fundamental transformation of the person's, as we said last time, existential mode. So let's talk a little bit more again about what's missing from the model of attention. So this cognitive unison I think we can make use of um, uh, uh, another important cognitive scientist, philosopher, scientist, who did work on attention, and that's Michael Polanyi. Um, And he pointed out that attention has an important structure, and we've been trying to follow the platonic um, idea of turning the feature list into a feature schema, picking up on structures. And the way, in order to bring out what Polanyi is talking about, I'm going to run through an experiment with you, an experiment you can sort of follow along with me. Um, so let me describe it to you first. Um, I need you to get some object like a pencil or a pen, and we will call that your, your probe. Uh, nothing untoward is meant by that. That's just what it's called in psychology. It doesn't involve any aliens doing um, uh, graphic things to your body or anything like that. So what we're going to do is let me describe it to you first. Okay, so what I'm going to ask you to do is I'm going to ask you to find some object that you could put on a, on a desk in front of you or hold in your hand, and then you're going to do the following. Do not start yet because I want to describe it to you. I'm going, I'm going to ask you to tap on the object as if you were blind and you're trying to figure out what the object is, its shape, its structure, its weight, its density. Oh, that's a cup, right? That, that makes sense. Now, it's important while you... Now, you should close your eyes you're doing this. I'm using touch because touch is slower than sight. And so you can become more aware of what, what, what's happening. Now, it's important while you do this that you continue tapping. So I'm going to ask you in a moment to close your eyes, start the tapping, and then while you're doing it, continue the tapping as you are following my instructions. And this will, this will give you a sense of, of what you're doing. Okay, so what I want you to do is close your eyes. You start tapping on your object, right? Start tapping until you start to form an image of the object in your mind. Okay, so your eyes are closed. You're starting to get an image of what that object is in your mind. Okay, so right now you're aware, like you're focally aware. What you're focusing your awareness on is the object. I want you to keep tapping, but I want you to shift your awareness into your probe. Feel how your pencil or your pen is moving around, shifting. Okay, keep tapping. And then I want you to shift your awareness into your fingers and feel how your fingers are moving around, shifting around. Okay? Some of you may be able to pick up on the individual feelings that are occurring in your fingers. Now go back, feel your fingers and your thumb, how they're moving. Now feel how the probe is moving. And now 
allow the tapping to reveal the object to you once again. So I've done this multiple, multiple times with people. And what's interesting is the following thing. Mo most people find this very readily uh, easy to do. And a couple things. When you're initially tapping, for example, I was aware of my cup, but then my awareness moves into my marker, and then my awareness moves into my finger. And when my awareness is in my finger, I'm not aware of the cup at all. Then I was able to reverse it. I go from being aware of my fingers to being aware of the probe to being aware of the cup. You're saying, what's all this about? What's going on? Well, there's an important structure. Let's take a look at it step by step. So here's the cup, or whatever your object was, right? And I'm tapping on it with my probe, okay? Now here's the interesting thing. It's not like I was completely unaware of my probe, because if I was completely unaware of it, I couldn't manipulate it. But I wasn't actually aware of it. I was aware through it. I was aware through my probe of the cup. So I'm aware through this, and I'm aware of this. So it's like my probe is transparent to me. And I'll let me give you an analogy right now where this is opaque. Right? Here's the analogy. And think about, and we talked about this before, but let's do it again. And it's like my glasses are like my framing, right? My glasses are transparent to me in the sense that I'm looking through them, beyond them, by means of them. They're transparent to me. But what I can do is I can redirect my awareness so that I'm now looking at my glasses rather than through them. So my glasses have now become opaque to me. So I can do a transparency to opacity shift. Now what does that ability to shift indicate? Well, this is, this is part of Polanyi's idea. Here's my probe. I'm aware through my probe. He has what I call a subsidiary or an implicit awareness. Because I'm aware through it. I'm not aware of it. I'm aware through it, right, of my focal object, for example, my cup. And this, I have a focal awareness or an explicit awareness. Now his, his point, which is really quite good, right, is that attention is this kind of structuring phenomena. What it is, it's always attention, as he says, from to. It's an attention through subsidiary awareness into focal awareness. When I'm paying attention, I'm doing this. But here's the interesting thing. I was then able to step back and make this focal, right? And now it's my fingers that I'm aware, I'm aware through my fingers of my probe. And then I can even step back and be aware of my, of my feelings, what some people would call sensations. So I can, I can keep stepping back and stepping back. So I'm looking at the cup through my probe. Now I'm looking through my fingers at the probe, and now I'm looking through my feelings at my fingers. And of course, the whole time I was actually looking at the cup, I was doing all of that. I was looking through my feelings, through my fingers, through my probe, into the cup. And you see, the spotlight metaphor is missing all of that layered, recursive, dynamic structuring that's going on. And notice you can move in both directions. You can do a transparency opacity shift in which I step back more and more into my mind, or I can go the opposite way. I can do an opacity 
to transparency shift, that's when you went the opposite way. That's when you go from looking at your fingers to looking through your fingers at your probe and going from looking at your probe to looking through your probe to the cup. And your attention is doing that all the time, flowing in and out, doing a transparency and opacity shifting. Now, that's very important because that's an important, what you're seeing is how many different processes are being coordinated, integrated together to optimize and prioritize, to use an important term from Watzel, this particular object or this particular scene or situation. So that's one way in which attention is operating. Now, for reasons I'm not quite sure of, I think it has to do something with we're using a visual metaphor and the way vision is oriented in our bodies, we tend to use an in-out metaphor for this. Like that's why I'm using stepping back and looking at as opposed to like looking through. Notice also something that's really important for where we're going to need this when we talk about Gnosis and participatory knowing. Notice when I was, if you'll allow me, when I was knowing the cup through the probe, I'm indwelling the probe, right? It's not like I'm, right? I'm participating in how the probe is being with respect to the cup. I'm sort of indwelling it. I'm, I'm not knowing the probe, I'm knowing through the probe. I'm inter-essay. I'm so deeply interested that I'm actually right, integrated with it and through it into the cup. The way my vision is integrated with the, these glass lenses so that I'm actually seeing through them and by means of them. Now the point about this, and we've talked about this before, of course, is this also works not with just technology, but with psychotechnologies. We talked about this with second-order thinking. You can so integrate literacy, for example, into your cognition that you don't look at literacy very much. You automatically look through it. And we'll come back to that. All right, we're back. Oh, boy. So uh, he did a really good summary of our last episode, and if you guys missed that, it's definitely worth checking out. It'll, it'll help catch you up to now. And um, the mindfulness revolution spawned so much of, well, everything, our understanding and our interaction with reality and, and the development of these psychotechnologies that allow us to awaken and transcend these modes of being. So we're recognizing now that attention is an optimization process. It's structurally organizing reality for us so that we can best optimize and prioritize uh, the various scenes, objects, mm -hmm. and situations we're enacting. Yeah, and the I guess we went over the limitation of the spotlight metaphor, which is like your brain just looks at a thing and it looks at another thing, and you know the the probe example. Mm -hmm. so I really like that. you go That's from a really you cool know, experiment. object, probe, hand, sensation. Yeah, and then you can work your way even further back. Yeah, um, you can get a genuine <laughs> image of something in your head just by tapping on yeah. it, and then you can recognize the awareness of the actual probe itself then you can make have the awareness of the actual movement the fingers movement and then you can even notice the sensations yeah in your fingers which you keep going back and back and forward and forward which is not how the spotlight metaphor works yeah, it, do, it doesn't quite describe the whole thing you're not just aiming light on something well, you're seeing through things as well like he said through his glasses well through this example we've 
you know, we've learned that we have a, what, what do you call it, the implicit, the mm-hmm. su- implicit subsidiary awareness, awareness. Subsidiary. and then you have your focal awareness. So your mm-hmm. focal awareness, if you're thinking about the probe, is the probe. Yes. And then you can learn about the cup through the probe. Yes. Yes. And that's that's this. And then you have the, the explicate awareness. Yeah. Um, so the, the so implicit subsidiary awareness mm-hmm. is a secondary reaction. You can think of it as a, the, the secondary reaction. Well, the subsidiary or, is or, the secondary ones, right? That's what I'm saying. But it, well, yeah. implicit is the subsidiary awareness. Oh, that's awareness. right. It is the subsidiary. Is the yeah. Yeah. subsidiary. And, then focal, there's and then the focal awareness is, is the spotlight, but spotlight, it's not just the right. spotlight. You so know? it's through subsidiary to, into focal, into sensations that or, you described or ba- in that. Or, or, back, or, or vice back, versa or the other way as well. Awareness yeah. is always doing this in, in mm-hmm. and out thing, you could say. So it's got this layered dynamical structure yeah, to, the, to it. The, it's doing both of these at the same time, too. It's how we can read. It's the he goes transparency opacity here. shift mm-hmm. is the term he used, yes. and I like that, you know, because um, yeah. as you're shifting from probe and we're doing to this hand all the time to sensation, each piece becomes transparent. Well, as you move through the, like, say, if you're at the probe, the probe becomes transparent or opaque, mm-hmm. uh, depending on like where you're at yeah. yeah or it becomes the thing that you're indwelling yeah like you and then drive a car but if you move yourself back other things has to become more opaque or transparent as you mm-hmm. go as well so it's a shifting yeah through and you can you know you could even imagine you know doing it like that at the same time well, mm-hmm. that must be that it that must kinda. be yeah so it's this participatory dance well, and you can find it's always engaged in participatory knowing as where Beaky describes it and as you go like say further in you become blind the object itself that you're hitting against Mm -hmm. you know like you know when i'm playing an instrument for the most part i'm kind of blind of the instrument yes it's in my hands and the the muscle memory is doing the thing but there's so much else going on like you know thinking about the order of the song there's lyrics coming up what are the lines with that you know okay let's not rush it too much let's you know Mm -hmm. doing all that stuff keeping track of a whole bunch of stuff not even aware of right yeah, and then if you there's know. like a complicated part, you need to focus on the instrument. You can do that. Well, and it's actually a problem when you become aware of the instrument you're playing. Right. Well, yeah, if you're trying to you stay up, in the you know? flow state, yeah, yeah you're, you yeah. need to learn how to be able to move through the different levels of attention yeah. without it tripping you up. Yeah, and, and so it's very, and it's very same, helpful to well, practice these self transcendence yeah. techniques that allow you to just kind of like watch the thing from above while it's happening mm. more and more. Yeah. Music's a good thing. That's why everybody should great at, training at, at least at, at least try to figure out how to sing or play some instrument, even if it's an egg shaker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it comes naturally to it's us. It's good practice. Yeah. It's fun. You can do it with your friends, and if it's even more fun when you do, like, <laughs> and <laughs> you know. we feel like only half a human without that creative output. I feel like it's yeah. natural for every child, and mm-hmm. at some point it kind of fades away. But everyone is. Is definitely into drawing and coloring and all that stuff mm-hmm. when you play doh and everything when you're a kid. Like, we're creative and it's, you know, inventing, whether it be starting a business or it's also, you know, it's how, how we dress, it's how we act, it's everything that we do is creative. And so, just embracing that and bringing more creativity into life uh, is very enriching. It d- certainly generates meaning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's pretty much that as far as i got on my notes i got some fun little bad drawings but that's about it <laughs> it makes sense to me you know when i was a kid like the borders of every oh yeah one yeah, of my yeah. notebooks was covered in art everywhere 
all the time. Well, actually, if you look at like, you know, like old texts and stuff like that, they tend to put art all in the margins, too. So. Right. But they were professional doodlers. Yeah. You know, they were yeah, scribes and you know scholars. For me, it was like the freedom around the forced learning process where I was writing in the middle. I was just mm. like, okay, I can draw a little bit here. All right, guys. Well, let's jump back into it. Yes. Episode nine of John Verbeek's Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. All right. So this is, right, as I said, this seems to be, people talk about this metaphorically as moving in and out with their awareness. So one of the th- ways attentions work is it moves in and out. You can, right, look through a lot of processing deeply out into the world, or you can step back and look at a lot of processing and withdraw towards the center of your mind. There's another important axis upon which your attention is working, and I can bring it out by a famous example. Right? So you give this to people and you ask them to read it, and they say, what does it say? And they'll say, the cat. And, they, and they're like, oh yeah. Right? And then you point out to them that they're reading this as an H, and they're reading this as an A, and these are exactly the same thing. Why are you reading one, one is an H and the other is an A? And so what they'll typically say to you is, well, because it fits in with this word as an H, and it fits in with this word as an A. So let's use language we've already developed. The letters are the features, and the word is the gestalt, the overall structure. Now notice here, you've got a problem. It's almost, you know, a pseudo-Zen problem. In order to read the words, I must read each individual letter, but in order to disambiguate each letter, I must have read the whole word, Therefore, reading is impossible. Now, of course, reading isn't impossible, which means something else has to change. What has to change is your model of attention. The searchlight metaphor, the spotlight metaphor, can't address that problem. Here's what your attention is actually doing. It's simultaneously going up from the features to the gestalt, the eidos, the structural functional whole, And it's going down from the gestalt, the words, to the individual letters, the features. It's simultaneously doing that. Your attention is also doing this. So not only is your attention flowing in and out, right, doing transparency, opacity, shifting, it's also flowing up and down between feature and gestalt. Your attention is doing all of that. It's doing it right now. And the spotlight metaphor doesn't capture any of that. And mindfulness has to do with making use of all of this complex, dynamical, remember what dynamical systems are, dynamical processing. These are dynamic, self-organizing processes, and they can be optimized. And mindfulness optimizes them in some way. So, I'm, I'm going to put something up on the board. It looks like a graph, but it's not a graph because it doesn't have absolute position. It's just, it's just a schema because it has relative position. So when I move this way, like we were talking about when we were talking about Polanyi's work, I'm doing transparency to opacity shifting. And going this way is to do transparency to opacity, and to go this way is to do opacity to transparency. It's not an app, no position is transparent and the other is opaque. It's always the direction that matters. The more I move this way, 
The more I'm stepping back and looking at, the more I go this way, the more I'm indwelling and looking out into the world. Then we have this. I can be going down from the gestalt to the features, using the word to decide the letters, for example, and I can be going up from the features to the gestalt. Nothing is inherently a feature. Look, the letters are a feature in the word, but the word is a feature in the sentence. Nothing is absolutely a feature. It's always relative. That's why I'm putting these double arrows. This isn't a Cartesian graph. Okay, this is not a Cartesian graph. This is a schema. But one thing you should know is that although I can describe and you can understand these two axes independently, they're almost always operating in a highly dynamic integrated fashion. Very often, as I'm moving towards a gestalt, grabbing a big, bigger picture, I'm using that bigger pattern to look more deeply into the world. So often, I'm doing this. I'm grabbing bigger patterns and I'm using those deeper patterns to look deeper into the world. Right? So when you find, this is what we do in science, for example. I, I find this and this and this. I get a pattern and then I find a way to integrate it together and then I use that pattern to look more deeply in the world. This is what this is, right? I found a pattern and it allows me to look more deeply into the world. I'm no longer looking at these individual things, force, mass, and acceleration. I've integrated them together, and that allows me to look more deeply into the world. Often, when we're stepping back and looking at our minds, our awareness processes within attention, we're also often breaking up gestalts into features. For example, you were breaking up your experience of your whole finger into individual sections of your finger when we were doing the experiment. You were breaking up the whole of the cup into individual moments of contact. So very often, we're all, we're, these two to come together. Let's call this scaling up of attention and scaling down of attention. So, first of all, let's map these onto mindfulness practices to make clear why we're doing this. So, I teach my students Vipassana, very traditional form of meditation. Notice what the word meditation means. It actually means moving towards the center. So we know it's going to have this aspect to it. So what do you do? Well, typically you train people by telling them to pay attention to their breath, Right? So first of all, what they're doing is paying attention not to the world, they're stepping back, but they're not really paying attention to their breath. What you tell them is the following. Again, language of explaining, not the language of training. Look at it in much more fine grain. You tell them to pay attention to the feelings and sensations that are being generated in their abdomen as they breathe. So as they inhale, they're feeling sensations in their abdomen, and as they exhale. And what they're doing is trying to right, do that that like I did with my finger. They're trying to maintain and renew their interest, constantly make it salient to themselves. Now notice what's happening. Normally, right, our, our embodied sensations, I'm not happy with that word for sort of philosophically important reasons, but I, I don't have time to go into it right now, right? 
Normally, we don't pay attention so much to our sensations. We pay attention through our sensations to the world. Right? So normally, I'm not paying attention to my feelings. I'm paying attention through my feelings to the cup. In meditation, I'm stepping back and not looking through my sensations. I'm stepping back and looking at them. Right? That's like, I don't look through the way my mind is framing things. I'm looking at the framing. I also do something else. I don't just look at it as one blob. I do something like observational analysis. I break the gestalt up into separate experiences. I'm doing this. I'm stepping back and looking at, and I'm breaking the gestalt of my experience up into its features, its atomic features, if you'll allow me a metaphor that you shouldn't push too far. That's what you do in meditation. And we'll talk about why would you do this? Why would that matter? And importantly, our question is, why would that help cause insight? So that's meditation. That's Vipassana, for example. I also teach my students a contemplative practice. So the word meditation means to move towards the center. And that fits perfectly with Vipassana and this kind of thing. Contemplation. Now, it bespeaks how, how overly simplified the West is in trying to understand this, in that these terms are now treated as synonyms. Contemplative practices, meditative practices, it's all the same thing. Aren't these just synonyms? They're not synonyms. And paying attention to their etymology will, will quickly reveal this. First of all, the Latin etymology. This, look, what's in the center of this is temple. It comes from a temple, which actually comes from the Latin word for a part of the sky that you look up to to see the signs from the gods. To contemplate is to look up towards the divine. This also goes well and is convergent with the, the contemplatio. The Latin term was a translation of this Greek word, theoria. And theoria also originally doesn't mean generating a theory. A theory is a species of theoria. Because what I do with theoria is I try to see more deeply into reality. You see? Meditation is moving this way and contemplation is moving that way. Meditation emphasizes scaling down. Contemplation emphasizes scaling up. And I was taught both. In fact, I was taught three things in an integrated fashion. I was taught Vipassana, a scaling down strategy. I was taught Metta, a scaling up strategy. And you're scaling up with your sense of identity, by the way. We'll, talk, we'll come back to that later. And then I was taught Tai Chi Chuan. Because Tai Chi Chuan is about moving, right? In and out, in and out, flowing between these inner and outer movements in a dynamic and optimizing fashion. Why, why teach me all these things together? Because it's actually a system of these psychotechnologies that will optimize your cognition for insight. Okay, so do you remember we did the nine-dot problem, right? We talked about that. to stop here this is so cool I love the way he's describing attention now this is at the very cutting edge of understanding of attention that we have at this point uh, yeah okay let me see where we left off here
uh, the cat, which um, yes, he. he I love that. Let, letters are the features. The words are the uh, you know gestalt. the gestalt or Just the idos or the or structural functional organization, organization. Yeah. or the um, structural functional whole. Yeah. So how the whole thing functions and is structured to work together. Mm-hmm. That larger idea. Well, and this brings us back to the the arena and um, agent, mm-hmm. the agent thing as well because it's yeah it's a cyclical relationship or the they define yeah. the, the the relationship knowing. Yeah, yeah the participatory knowing but it defines like you know the 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 arena is defined by the agents mm-hmm. and, but the, the agents, agents are also, also defined, defined by the arena. To the arena yeah well the letters are in this case defined by the overall. Mm-hmm. arena of yeah. the understanding of these words and that's so that's the up and down a- axis here is you know the gestalt and the features mm-hmm. and so he introduces one axis within a um what's the word a schema right you know not cartesian not like plotted points but movements and directions mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in and out ofs yes it allows for yes. in and out instead of just up down le- left right mm-hmm. or backwards but in mm-hmm. and out movement through um, yeah, I was thinking when I listened to this previously how cool it would be to find an animation. And I was thinking how good you would be for helping formulate something like that or even just like a 3D model to help understand this. But it, it, it's pretty good with the, with the 2D way that he expresses it here. And, and I love the idea of how we can utilize the letters to determine what the word is, but we can also use the shape of the word to determine what the individual letters are and automatically guess. So we're doing that mm-hmm. both these things all the all the time. And then we have so we're we're utis- utilizing this ability to gain deeper and deeper patterns, integrate those patterns and then to look more deeply into the world. So we got this opacity transparency shift that we can do. But then we have the up and the down where the letters are features and the word is the gestalt. Letters are features, word is the gestalt. And that dynamical self-organizing process can be optimized by mindfulness practices and why. And so we're understanding now meditation allows us to scale down, uh, gain the, the fine detail of things. And then we can also scale up. So yeah, we, we can meditate to move towards the center to and that's that's not the center of this break chart. our framing and to break that framing up into tiny little features to understand the process better of our thinking for instance and then with the contemplation where we get the word comes from, coming from the word temple this outward looking up to the divine and bringing those two together is these systems together into a larger process like is what mindfulness is that's what the buddha discovered the non-dual path it's learning how to optimize both of these processes at once and bring them into unison yeah um so contemplation is the scaling up and out at you know 45 degrees between um the eidos Mm-hmm. Um, gestalt axis and the opacity to transparency right. axis, not the transparency to uh, transparency to op- opacity. Boy, those words are hard to say together. Um, so one is to and which is well, going that's, toward that's an important aspect of it. Yeah, that that brings in more definition to it. Yeah. So 
in this schema that he has. Yeah, the scaling down is going from trans to opaque. And then the scaling up is going opaque to trans. Uh, and down into... So meditation goes... Yes. So the realm of meditation is down into features and going from transparency into opacity. So as far back into yourself until everything yes, else transparency is opaque. And that center is in center of this chart. The center is the center of self. Yes, mindfulness. The thing that meditation is in the center of everything else. Moving toward the center. And then going up, up into the right, so into the positive, positive end of things. If, mm -hmm. um, that's opacity in, into uh, transparency. Right. So m moving forward to get more understanding of this through the probe your eyes are probes too in a sense you know because yes. you use them to look and that is the scaling up into the the meta so you're trying to understand well the structural functional organization what things actually are mm -hmm. through their action if mm -hmm. you will um so there's i guess from your perspective in the camera there's this way and this way yeah and you exist in this realm and this realm and you're going back and forth and meditation is breaking it down and looking at the feet, you know, the going down to the, the deep feature, like say like mm -hmm. the finger you're down all the way down, all the way down, all the way down. And then you back in, in almost like you could think of it as like retreating inward as well. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. The inner versus the outer approaches. Or even like if you're trying to like, say, I don't know, you study animals, but then you go even further, and, well, then you study invertebrates, but then you go even further, and then you study that. So, like, not just meditation and contemplation can be used in this schema as well, which is now interesting. you can look at this uh, atomic you're, you're structure like of our bodies, focusing. and then you got the astronomic structure of the universe. So this, well, I guess yourself can be a center, but also the thing you're looking at mm -hmm. can also it do also that as well. Yeah. Um, and then the scaling up and out is... Uh, call that the jack of all trades realm where you're trying to get as much understanding of as much as you possibly can. Yes. And later on, he'll talk about like the, the, it's how our awareness works, uh, how attention works. Yeah. And he'll talk about like where the pitfalls and also the blessings of each sides of this schema mm -hmm. are, you know, and when to use them. And that's the third thing. It teaches you how to move through them and w when to use them. Right. And that's like the Tai Chi and the, you know, movement practices. Mm hmm. Um, mm hmm. So practicing the inner, the outer, and then the actual re rhetoric yeah. of the doing the both of them in a graceful kind of like the shaman is acting like the deer. You're acting like reciprocal dance. You're acting like concepts. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I really like this scheme. I'm gonna have to keep it. I'm I'm a fan of you know charts and schemas and all that stuff. And it's, it's a good one. Yeah, and all the information. Um, so contemplation, though, the word yeah, is a temple, temple. Yeah. and one that you look up, up in and out yes. through. Um, and and then, then he, he talked about theoria. Which, yeah, which was one which of the words. Which is where the word contemplation comes yeah. from. Uh, a theory, to see more deeply a into. theory is just a species yeah. of, the, or, so theories are, th are species of theoria. Theory, yeah. Theoria is what we use to see more deeply in general. Yeah. So all these different theories, these species of theories that we utilize are helping us see more deeply into the world. That's the practice of theoria, of contemplation, to see more deeply into. So they're both allowing us great. Uh, this That's why this helps us generate insight. 
both of these together. You understand the, mm-hmm. the features, the fine detail, and then their structural, functional organization. And you can continually get a transcendent and deeply finely tuned telescoped, microscoped into level of detail playing together at once. This is how you play music when you're in the flow state or do anything like that requires fine movements of graceful execution, such as an Olympian doing the pole vault or gymnastics or the ballerina and the ice skater. Well, even like um, just like standard studying of anything, you know, you'll have the like mm-hmm. you're studying the thing, but then, which you could call it your like the, it would be in, in the meditation realm. Um, it's not actually not meditation, but f- for these purposes. So you're studying the thing, but then you need time to step away and contemplate the thing. What it all means together, so you can yeah. get all the little terms. Because you're not just studying together, one thing; you you're studying the subject as a whole. Yeah, through all yeah. those minor things, and then the actual teaching of it, or the writing of of a really good paper or new theory, is the explication of un- both of those understandings at once. So that's kind of like what John Verveke recognizes. Tai Chi can be very useful for because this is a moving meditation practice. You're going out and in mm-hmm. and out and learning to optimize this process. And then this capacity to be able to go inner, to be able to go outer, and to be able to play with the fine-tuned uh, involvement of both of those processes at once a lot translates to anything else, everything else that we do in the world. Yeah. So very helpful in helping us individually and as a species attenuate to our environments. So yeah, I think that's that's a good point. Yeah, let's uh, uh, let's bring him back a few seconds uh, yeah. just to. Or do you think it's a good time for a five minute break here? Yeah, we can let's take. A, we're about at the fifty minute mark. Um, can we just uh, while we're on break, leave it on there so people can look at the chart that he has? If sure, yeah, we can do that. Yeah, just ba- uh, let me bring it back. So we're at twenty six thirty right now. Twenty six thirty. We got that. Yeah, I think that that would be good because the the way he drew this out is really good. And you should draw it yourself, too, so that you can start putting ideas and things within this little chart that he has. Yeah, that's that's what I'm doing. It helps like, you know, this is a good chart to think about Mm -hmm. things as we move on from here. Are we scaling out with our thoughts or are we scaling down or scaling up or scaling down? Right. Um, So this will become a very valuable chart. I might make a like a large one that, you know, we can. You guys might not be able to see it, but we can play with just right. for yeah, our we'll understanding. Get a whiteboard or something, and, and then we can put or a uh, cork board so we can put tacks. You know, like right. write a little thing, rip it off, stick it. You know, like where you think it would go, kind of like a political chart or whatever. But it's like, okay, there's this practice. Is it a going down? Oh yeah, we could just take pictures of the different scenes that of his own examples as well. Put sure. Them up. Yeah, and it, like for my own practice, like this just helps me to be able to put stuff in 3D space because that's how my works. If I can put it in 3D space. It's fine. All right, so let me find that part here. Let's see. I love his Tai Chi movements that he shows off. Don't go too far back, though. Uh, There's a part where it's zoomed in, and it's a little easier to see. I think it's probably around there somewhere. Um, let's keep it kind of current, though, because he writes more stuff on there. His stuff is pretty good. Yeah, let me see if we can get in one more. Trying to get you the, be- the, the best stuff. Let's see where this puts us. Uh, yeah, off the sh- off his shoulder. Where, yeah, uh, there we go. That's well, we don't have the other that that diagonals in there. Here's the diagonals. Okay, that should be good enough. And just remember, while you're looking at this, um, up and right, 
is uh, contemplation. Down and left is meditation. Mm-hmm. The O and T uh, mean uh, either opacity or yep. transparency. Transparency and opacity. And, and then opacity, features and gestalt. Yes. So features are at the bottom and gestalt is at the yeah, top. Yeah, gestalt, the big picture. The future, the individual items that make up the big picture. And, and our attention can actually go any direction here. We can actually focalize it. So we can go just from transparency, as we were saying, to, to opacity and vice versa. So we can go from gestalt to feature and feature to gestalt. We're doing them both at once, or we can even focus on one at a time. And then we have the scaling up and the scaling down of this recognition and this interrelating of these patterns that gives us the insights that helps us generate the insight insightful understanding of whatever it is that we're situations whatever we're trying to understand yep 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 yeah all right well we're going to take a quick break i'm going to go go to the party we'll be right back go ahead and grab yourself a drink and let your friends and family know about actual eye podcast and john bravaki's awakening from the meaning crisis if you're enjoying this series we highly encourage you to definitely like and subscribe and go on and like and subscribe john bravaki as well and you can Watch the series over there, too. All right, guys. We'll be right back. Okay, okay. What's up, everybody? We're back. All right. Hope you all had a good break. Yeah. I think we're ready to jump back in here. Yep, did, uh, we, oh, sorry. My phone's going off. Hey, hey. Well, we're uh, working. Did we want to bring the volume up just a little bit? Yeah, let's do that. Yeah, let's bring it up. Bring it up. We're still getting better every day. Getting everything. A little bit. Yeah, we don't have to be Make as sure. close now. Get a little breathing room. Get us on par with Verveke here. All right, so let's jump back into it. Where were we at again now? 2630. Uh, 2630. And uh, going over scaling up and scaling down. Scaling up is a contemplation, contemplative movement into the meta. And then scaling down is the meditative aspect towards, you know, so withdrawing into and then, like, you know, your attention drawing into, say, the object or yourself or inward. And then the scaling up is the contemplation of how it, all these features fit together. Mm-hmm. So one is breaking it down into features, and one is the overarching view. Yes. Um, yes. I'm going to have to end up dr- and that's drawing this opaque chart. Opaque to and transparency, and then, yeah, the up and yeah. down, the gestalt to the individual uh, items like letters, words versus letters, and then the scaling up and the scaling down of the association that those patterns represent that helps us experience and cultivate insight. Mm. Yes. Yes. All right. So we're dropping back in here. Yes. Here we go. Okay. So do you remember we did the nine dot problem, right? We talked about that. Remember the fact that you can misframe things. So let's do the nine dot problem again. Join all nine dots with four straight lines, and people find it difficult. Why? Remember, we talked about this. They automatically listen to the words. Remember? They automatically and unconsciously project a square there. And then they automatically take this to be a connect-the-dot problems, and so no non-dot turns are possible. And therefore, they can't get the solution. The solution is, here's four straight lines. One, two, three, four. The reason why people find that so difficult is I have to break the square and I have to not treat it as a typical connect-the-dot problem. I have to not treat it categorically, to use language you've heard already. 
because you don't do non-dot turns. Remember this. Now notice there's two mo moments to having an insight. I have to break up an inappropriate frame. What do I have to do? I have to break up the gestalt. Right? And I also have to de-automatize my cognition. I have to make it not operate unconsciously and automatically. Well, how do I do that? I take stuff that's normally happening unconsciously, and I have to bring it back into consciousness. Yes? That makes sense? How do I do that? I do that by doing a transparency opacity shift. Normally, I'm automatically sensing through my probe. But I can shift my awareness and become aware of my probe. I can bring things back into awareness. So you de-automatize cognition by doing a transparency to opacity shift. So I break up the inappropriate frame, and I de-automatize my cognition by scaling down. Now, interestingly enough, there is lots of work by Noblik and other people showing that you can improve people's ability to solve insight problems if you get them to do what's called chunk decomposition and constraint relaxation. Chunk decomposition is just breaking up a gestalt. That's what chunk decomposition means. Constraint relaxation is basically de-automatizing your cognition. De-automatizing your cognition. Scaling down helps you to break up the chunks, break up the gestalts, and it helps you to de-automatize your cognition. But is that enough for insight? It's not enough. Yes, I have to break up the inappropriate frame. But I have to make an alternative and better frame. I have to, watch, I have to widen, widen my field of awareness. I have to take stuff that was in the background and change its relevance. I have to look more deeply for deeper, broader patterns that I have not considered before. What do I have to do? In order to make a new frame, I have to scale up. And we also have lots of independent evidence, having nothing to do with mindfulness or meditation, that one of the ways you can improve people's ability to be insightful is if they, get if they have training or practice or are naturally disposed to being able to scale up. If people can complete patterns in a kind of leaping that C.C. Benner and Baker talk about, right, and other people, if we can scale up in that way, if we, if we can... Uh, take pictures that are out of focus and refocus them mentally so we can suddenly see what the picture is. Again and again and again, when people can scale up better, they're better at solving insight problems. So both make you better. But there's a problem, because both also make you worse. Because if I, if I just scale up, if I just maximize, like tightening the string, then, of course, I will immediately project the square, and then I'm locked. What, well, shouldn't I just scale down? Just meditate. Always. If I just keep breaking up gestalts, I'll never make the solution. I'll choke myself. That's what happens when people are choking. You get a way, like if you're sparring with somebody, a way to get them off is to compliment them. That was a really good, like, Right hook you just threw. Because then the person will start stepping back and looking at it, and they'll get all screwed up because they'll break up the ability to generate the gestalt. 
So notice what I'm saying, because stick with me, because this is really sort of tricky. This can improve your chances for insight by breaking up a bad frame. But it can also mess up your problem solving by causing you to choke. This can improve your ability for insight by causing you to make a better frame. But this can also cause you to leap into an inappropriate frame and be locked in fixation. So what should you do? You don't want the strings too tight. You don't want the strings too loose. And you don't want it just halfway. Well, what do you want to do is you want to train people in both of these skills and then train them to flow between them. It's called opponent processing. So they're pulling and pushing on each other, and so they're forced to coordinate and constantly get the right degree of attentional engagement that is most dynamically fitted to the world. That's why the people who trained me trained me in all these things. That's why you shouldn't equate mindfulness just with meditation. It's not. So if you pay attention, for example, to the Eightfold Path, you'll have people be trained in meditative practices, contemplative practices, practices in which you flow between the opposites until you learn, like in a martial art, to get an apt and constantly adjusted fittedness, attentional fittedness to the world. Now, this leads very naturally into talking about mystical experiences and the kinds of mystical experiences that people can have within their mindfulness practices. But before I do that, let's gather. Notice what we've said here. We have an understanding of mindfulness. What's mindfulness doing? Mindfulness is basically teaching us how to appropriate and train a flexibility of attentional scaling so that we can intervene effectively in how we are framing our problems and increase the chances of insight when insight is needed. Notice that this didn't really... Ex what? How is being present making you more insightful? But I've given you a way of understanding being present that works. When I'm scaling down, I'm actually like making my mind less representational, less inferential. I'm doing all of this work to become aware of and gain some mastery over my processes of problem framing and thereby training skills that will make me more insightful. What happens if you were just to scale down and practice scaling down and scaling down and scaling down and scaling down? Well, you can actually get to one kind of important mystical experience. So Foreman calls this, and it's well attested, calls this the pure consciousness event, the PCE. The pure consciousness event. It's a kind of mystical experience you can have after extensive mindfulness practice. I've experienced this. Let's do it. So, 
right now I'm looking at the world. And the, the thing you're doing when you're practicing meditation is you try and step back and look at the lens of your mind, if you'll allow me. And what happens is you, it's hard to maintain because you have such deep developed habits of directing your attention back out towards the world. And you start thinking about, got to do my laundry, got to do this. And then what you have to do is you have to bring your attention back again. You have, to, you have to do that. You have to recenter and step back and look at your mind rather than automatically looking through it. And you keep practicing. And that's like that. And, oh, and, it's, and it's arduous. But these are like doing reps. That's meditation. Meditation is like you're building this ability to step back and look at your mind. And then what happens is, right, remember how we, we, we went back in layers? We went into the probe and then into our fingers and into the sensations. When I do this with people, it's often the people who've had some mindfulness training that can step back all the way into their sensations. That's not a coincidence. So I, stop, I start, now I'm looking at my mind. Right? And then I start looking at the more subsidiary layers of my mind, the deeper layers by which I was looking at the upper layers. And then I step back again, I step back again. So now I'm just looking at my consciousness. And eventually I step back and I'm not even conscious of anything. I'm not conscious of this sensation. I'm just conscious. That's why it's called the pure consciousness event. You're not conscious of anything. You're just fully present as, a, as consciousness. You don't, you're not aware of yourself. You're not looking through your self-machinery. You're not looking through your consciousness. You're not even looking through your mind. You're just fully conscious. The pure consciousness event. This is the event that results from this. What about if you were to really, real, really scale up? Well, think about things that you might have heard associated with the Buddhist view. I see, I'm going to see everything is interconnected and everything is flowing, impermanent. I'm going to create this overarching gestalt and the gestalt is going to be so overarching it's going to include and encompass me. I'm going to experience this resonant at one minute. And you already know what that's like because we've already talked about it. Think about that as just a super flow state in which I'm deeply at one with everything. Super flow state. Resonant at one minute. I don't use atonement because that has a particular Christian meaning that I'm not trying to invoke here, at one minute. See, this model of mindfulness explains why people get into these kinds of mystical experiences. If they do a lot of meditative practices, they will get a pure consciousness event. If they do a lot of contemplative practices, they will develop this empathetic, participatory, flowing, super-flowing, resonant at one minute. But remember, what we want ultimately is we want these two together. There's a third state, and this is actually the state that matters. This is called the state of non-duality. So let me try and explain to you a way in which you can at least imagine you could get into it. It's a way I train people. Imagine that you're going to be cycling, scaling up and scaling down with your breath. So as you inhale, you scale up. And you do that sort of resonant at one minute. You're trying to right, be at, like flowing at one minute with everything. And then as you exhale, you're doing the Vipassana. You're trying to step back as close as you can to the pure consciousness event. And you, I, you oscillate back and forth with the breath. 
And you, and you often have to do that for years. But what can happen, and there's other ways of getting into this state. This isn't exclusive. This is one way, the way I was taught. What can happen is you can have the third kind of mystical experience. It's not the pure consciousness event. It's not resonant at one minute. It includes both and transcends both. It's both at the same time. Your awareness is deeply to the depths of your consciousness and deeply to the depths of reality, and it's completely at one. It's, it's all at once. This is a prajnic state, a state of non-duality. This is a, a one term for uh, wisdom. And it's this kind of mystical experience. Now, this is the state that's actually sought for, that non-duality, because this is the state that should lead to a comprehensive capacity for insight. Because you're not going to have an insight about nine dots and four straight lines. You're going to have an insight into the fundamental, the, the guts, the grammar of the agent-arena relationship. You're pushing to the ground of the agent, and you're pushing out to the circumference of the arena, and you're pushing that machinery to optimize so that you can see in as deeply integrated a fashion as possible that connectedness between the two. So you have the capacity for an insight, not into this problem or that problem, but in an insight and into your existential modes of being. This is how you can remember the being mode. You can have a fundamental insight into it. Now this is, in fact, of course, what Siddhartha experienced. He'd been practicing Vipassana and a, a contemplative practice called Metta very deeply, very powerfully, and we'd, it looks like one of his great innovations was to conjoin the two together. He often talks about the, them. And what happened was a radical transformation. He experienced enlightenment. We're going to talk about what that might mean. So after his enlightenment, after his awakening, he's walking down the road. All right, so before we get to this story here, he brings us back to that nine-dot problem where you have nine dots in a square and you're supposed to connect all the dots with four straight lines. And everyone gets stuck on this, even if you tell them, think outside the box. So this capacity to break up inappropriate frames that we can use with inward meditation and this capacity to transcend and create new frames is what allows us to widen our perspective, widen our attention and our problem-solving capacity for the nine-dot problems that we know we can actually draw through those first three lines and go past that square that the dots are making up in our mind. We can go outside of the square, then we make a turn that gets the other three. Mm -hmm. We come back to the top, and then we go and we get the last and that fourth line, and it works. And you're allowed to do that. You're not told you're not allowed to do that, but the brain really needs to be able to play at the edge there to be able to figure those things out. And so the optimization of 
these capacities that allow for insight and breaking the framing and making new frames, scaling up and scaling down mm. is what mindfulness practices yeah. truly are. That's what the, the eightfold path is teaching. That is what allows for these high level mystical experiences. If you were going to say something, go ahead. Um, just uh, as far as like while we're on the scaling down and the meditation and mm -hmm. um, it's to the purpose of it is to deatomatize. Yes. Say the yes. the the nine dots mm -hmm. to, to get to, to get break stalked. that framing of oh yes. well it's nine dots well it's a box yeah this, okay, this gotta, idea that it's a well, box is like what we're breaking and then there's yeah. um then there's the breaking of the gestalt which is then mm -hmm. okay so one is a um I guess one is an automatic assumption well they're both uh, you're breaking automatic assumptions and then you're breaking the overall structure of the box mm -hmm. so. Uh, the breaking of the gestalt is the chunk decomposition. Yes. Decomposing the chunks. Yes. And the the de-automatic assumption um, mm -hmm. and is the constraint relaxation. So it doesn't have to just be in the box. You're relaxing the, the constraints. So you're breaking down the box and relaxing the constraints. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Consciousness and uh, consciousness and being aware of how our mind is moving and thinking, uh, basically aware of the sensations, aware of the thoughts, rather than you know going from mind yeah. down to sub mind being to down to sub mind yeah. and, and down, mm -hmm. and then this this scaling up and is you know we need the scaling up because we can't just you know we need to widen yes. our attention, widen the field of the attention because uh, poten potentials to create new potential yeah. patterns, yeah. yeah, to find any new patterns that we're missing, yeah. It's really cool how it describes. So people meditate for a long time and they experience these pure consciousness events mm. where it's no longer just consciousness of anything. It's pure consciousness and it feels like it's in everything. And that's where people get this sense that like everything feels like me. It feels like everything is the self. Everything feels like it's inside happening and scaling up with for deep reverence and awe, for instance, and worshipfulness there can be you know like you can become very virtuous virtuosic in a practice whether it be sports or anything else by practicing these capacities that allow us to be in the flow state and so there's a resonant at one mint resonance with and and the at sense of at one mint with everything and both of these together yeah that's the so becoming aware of both of these existential modes, the agent scaling all the way down deep into the agent and then scaling all the way up to the very and pushing at the very edges of the arena. Mm -hmm. Not too not, not too tight, not too loose, though. And as that, we scale up and scale down, you know, so we figure out where a good center is. And that that states the non duality state or the prajna state. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's where we're able to Get into opponent processing, this uh -huh. attenuating, and this reciprocal dance. So it's it's mindfulness, not just meditation. It's uh, meditation and contemplation together to generate insights, to be able to break new, break old frames, create mm -hmm. better new frames. Mm -hmm. And the eightfold path involves this. Um, 
this development of being able to flow between the different states, the inner and the outer experiences, and to create increased fittedness to the world. So it is so much like a dance, and that's why martial arts must have gotten so deep and widely practiced on top of the attentive and the or the attentive practices, the meditative and contemplative practices and something that, were, that were involved in ancient Hinduism and Buddhism and Bhagavadanta and other schools, yoga and so forth. Well, it's something that we can do physically um, mm -hmm. that also helps trigger these insights within us. So there's also a merging between, you know, ultimately the, the object, I hate to say it like this, but the, the object world and then through the probe into everything and then all the way in and then reflecting mm -hmm. on your own practice and then going back out. And it's a physical thing we can do to not just do it mentally, but also extend that into the rest of the world, um, yes. you know, and interact with it. Mm -hmm. You know, the, it's no wonder. Yeah, and every, every moment you can be doing that. Yeah. Yeah, washing the dishes. Mm -hmm. You can go deep into the details of the experience, the feeling of the water, the way the soap is su setting up, and all of that. You can really become super attentive on all the little details, the fine details. And then you can get an awareness of your awareness of that. And then the awareness of the practice of the Mm -hmm. of doing of awareness of awareness and you can see how it just goes deeper 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 and then you can be in a sense of deep appreciation and deep and inv of involvement like honoring the moment fully which is like an outward expression in relation with that allows that deep resonance and that deep sense of a at one mint as you described mm -hmm. i like how the word atonement and at one mint go together yeah. it's like remembering oh i got off course let me reattenuate myself, recalibrate here, back into the fullness of love and light expression, and treating every moment as holy. Yeah. Well, and uh, so the necessity for this third state is to, you know, help with the cons, which the cons of scaling up too far is you'll leap in into inappropriate framings and then become fixated. Mm -hmm. And well, if you've ever seen bad like kung fu schools and martial arts schools, and you, you know. Yeah, um, it's not. A, it, it's always a fun, not exactly, fun trope but, you in, the, know. in the movies though. And then the scaling down cons is you'll choke, you'll fail to act, you'll. Mm -hmm. um, so the balance between the two, you know, I wish the Star Wars universe would have figured that out, and then you know they could have found the balance of the Force because I don't know, like Anakin didn't bring balance to it, and then there was Luke, and then after Luke, and you know, like come on now, come on guys, the third way, not. Not Jedi or Sith, but the third way, <laughs> yeah. which is flowing through both of them. That's, and that's what the true Jedi recognized, but yeah, you know, what do you do? Well, it, 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 the universe is accurate. They're constantly warring, so. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they're, yeah, they're still calibrating. Yeah. So, um, so uh, let's see. Yeah, so, training the flexibility of motivational scaling. Yeah. Being present, to be able to be insightful, less representational, less inferential, to gain mastery over our problem-solution framing. Looking at the mind rather than through the mind is meditation. Stepping back to center. Looking th through our consciousness until nothing but consciousness remains. And the scaling up, the resonant at one mint. And you can do a practice where it involves breathing in 
and feeling that deep at one mint and expanding your heart out for all beings and all moments and treating each moment as sacred. And then you can breathe in and breathe in deeply and feel the sensation of the expansion of the abdomen, all of the processes of how the stomach opens and then the chest and the coolness of the air entering in your nostrils, all of these different features that you can bring your attention to and go in and out. The uh, In mystical Christianity, monks, when they're reciting the Jesus prayer to the Lord Jesus, Son of God, and so that is happening on the inward breath. Have mercy on me is on the outer breath. Given up surrendering. When I first heard that pres- that prayer and described as tuning oneself into being fully present, fully honoring each moment as holy, um, it really helped further underst- help me uh, gain a further understanding of the idea of the word sin being from the term for miss the mark, falling short when shooting, aiming at something. So if we're aiming to transcend our baser instincts and live in ever-increasing states of honor, harmony, and love with one another, then we can utilize these mindfulness practices that allow us to hone that attentiveness that we can give to every moment. And not just so using them, but ever more consistent balancing ever them. Yeah. You know, because like, you can kind of see this in the outward world you you'll see like the space cadet psychonaut guys that you know they're doing a lot of deemsters and running around and doing the thing and like blasting off and you know having this whole thing and that would be the you know top right end of the spectrum the contemplative end of the spectrum and always like oh man like time dude you know like but then on the other end you can have you know the quiet meditator that's too far down into it all the time. Yeah, and movement just, and stillness. And do, and do, but you can bring them into a beautiful dance together where you can be still while you're moving inside, flowing yeah. effortlessly, responding with the perfect amount of pressure or relinquishment in every moment. Well, it, and I don't, I, don't, I don't think this third state is a this kind of thing. It's going in both directions at the same time. So either... Um, yes. scaling up and not now I'm scaling up now I'm scaling down not it starts as that you know mm-hmm. as you're practicing but eventually it's scaling up and scaling down at, at the same once. time yeah because it's like when you're dancing you're holding on to the other mm-hmm. person saying how much pressure am I applying how loose am I at the same time it's got to be the perfect amount for every single pull and push movement in the dance and both are attenuating to one another through the brain's recognition of immediate you know very deeply fine-tuned responses to the hundreds of muscles and our bodies as we're moving around and responding to one another as well we're feeling the pressure and the relinquishment of pressure and we're flowing with so yes we're doing very much a surrender and a control at once and being above that and allowing it to happen naturally together is to be fully mindful and just fully into that pure flow state. And we, we, we seem to... 
at once kind of naturally exist like that without realizing it say like in a imagine like a dense like urban area where all the time if you scale the scaling down end is realizing your individual like for the sake of this example realizing your individual behaviors and your rituals and things that you do for yourself but then there's the overarching well everybody else socially that you have to interact with as well mm-hmm. and you're doing that at the same time and we do it really naturally like yeah we got stoplights and stuff that tell traffic to stop and all this other stuff but we're all you know like say like driving down the road where well you're thinking about yourself yeah those lines aren't stopping you're thinking cars. about how everything we're, we're else stopping. is moving around yeah. and yeah and we do it naturally anyway mm-hmm. um and actually you know in extreme situations like where your brain has to go on overdrive for like survival and ends that's scaling up and scaling down at the same time you're going down to okay what are the features real quick and then how do they all fit together and then boom real quick instantly out of the way don't hit the deer (laughs) yeah it's amazing um so we naturally already do it and it's we and we can cultivate it uh, yeah Yeah. and we've we've got the tools you know and we're making more tools to be able to do this you know meditation being well traditional like sitting there meditation and moving meditation but also the not so traditional like you know jumping into a uh mosh pit or something mm-hmm. um kind of yeah thing that's you know, there's that so could, many yeah. levels to the outward expression of it and the inward expression of it and how the two are playing together at all times or even everything you know you do the subtle meditation yet contemplation at the same time of doing a rock garden mm-hmm. or uh, how do you get around that thing without putting foot marks and then using one of those rakes is a little bit harder than you think and you then really the got yourself doing that yeah and, yeah. yeah and moving the feeling in and of out. the heat of the sun and the softness of the soil and then the greater picture that you're doing again mm-hmm. and back and forth and back and forth mm-hmm. brings you deeper and deeper into the moment and it's what grants us meaningfulness in life that the more that we can make meaning of it the more meaningful it becomes and that sounds synonymous but it actually is a well it's the, the reciprocal dance yeah it's a, something that you get to like tune into and wind up and all the way back you know all the way back to early episodes of you know life doesn't follow the a goes to b b goes to c thing it does that reciprocal thing and that was yeah. that was a conundrum it's, it's like a dynamical well system you yeah, know biology is all yeah. dynamical systems so the tree leaves and the leaf trees yeah at the same time at the same time and just like you we sc- do and ideally we should you be able the letters to scale and the up at once and scale down yeah. at the same time in the right amount that we mm-hmm. you know the optimal amount the the golden mean is that uh what was the word yeah for that? the middle path yeah, it was the, the non-duality. Is the non-duality is what, and, that's what the yin-yang is describing when you yeah. look at that ancient Taoist symbol. That's what that's describing. It's, it's the highest way for us to operate. It's also the fundamental nature of reality. This interrelating opposites, opposing forces at all times. So what did he turn that again? The oppositional or the opponent processing. That's right opponent processing that attenuation process that's constantly going on with Mm. that in and out of and up and down and scaling in and out of attention Mm. yeah it's it's a lot and i've you know watched this episode like multiple times parts of this week now and it's and i've seen it before and it's just there's more and more and more here as we start delving into the series it's 
you keep on picking up more and more and then the idea just keeps stretching mm -hmm. itself wider it's really cool i like your mind's encapsulation of it i guess there's more and more detail and texture and insight well it seems like we're moving you know if we were to chart our path through these episodes up until now we're we've moved been moving from the the feature um transparency into opacity end of things mm -hmm. um now we first started talking about you know uh flow state and stuff like that to introduce the other end of that but the way we're learning is it's going through the features here are the features here are the things here are the the yeah. the, the, the the you know the the building blocks you need to be able to Understand erect the, the castle yeah. if you will yeah. and now we're starting to get to the point where it's like okay we're moving beyond features now into the mm -hmm. overarching understanding of where we're mm -hmm. going on this train yeah and he wanted you us know. to understand that that aristotle really got that there there's something that needs to be balanced here mm -hmm. to optimize our meaning making in the world to optimize our agent arena relationships we, we got to understand this growth process the transformational process itself how is it best how can we best attune ourselves how are we best developed and what are these different modes of being and different potentials and how are they interrelating and the east really like you said like there's this framing of detail up into organization and now we're going to be going into this other end uh where the east really specialized very well and then incorporated the two as well Mm -hmm. And as we see in, in uh, the East practice of the in, the internal and the outward practices and then the dancing and the movement and martial arts practices. And so, yeah. And we've yeah, like fun. all through human history, we've, we've been kind of doing it anyway, just naturally, like, like say dancing around the campfire, enacting what, I don't know, a story of a good hunt or something else like that. We're doing this, you know, creating the features break and then breaking yeah. the framing and then giving you the the overall idea but then you're having a watching body experience it too yeah and it, it's like are we are we and it's a story are we creating and it's how to hunt are we creating these um what's the word uh psychotechnologies or are we discovering them because right. our brains aren't really much different than they were it's kind of a, both a few end. hundred thousand years ago. These these brains with the forebrain and the capacity for... Or were there like seeds self. for like... Uh, uh, like It's like, okay, you, you get, we started out as a species with a set of toolbox <laughs> of how our brain works. And then we started taking things out and building other freaking we tools. We started exacting but everything that parts can, of the brain to do other things i guess you yeah. could think about it like this everything that a screwdriver can build or that you can build with with a screwdriver is in and of itself in that screwdriver but you need more things than just the screwdriver yeah yeah so like they both fit onto each other and we haven't even fulfilled the space oh, well that's the, form, the potential the, form, the, 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 the potential of the yeah, okay yeah so we've already talked like it's just yet again the cycle even like through time you know like it's mm -hmm. almost like the future informing the past and well you actually he went over that in an earlier episode too so yeah hey, it's all making sense now <laughs> it's really starting it clicks deeper and deeper and deeper and, and just like it starts to chime beautifully and then you start seeing this musical nature of the interrelation of aspects of of reality and our sense of conscious awareness and 
this deeper mm. sense of capacity for harmony with that and the uh, resonance mm. and uh, a sense of wonder for it all as well so it, is wonder and wander spelt the same no yeah wander is w-a-n-d-e-r and wonder is w-o i think but, i think they're related words there's something about it because when you wander yeah i think whitman when you wonder or Emerson that talked about loafing Loafing. They felt like loafing was important too, and that wasn't just sitting; it was like just kind of walking around, walking around, and hanging out in a spot, being, just and, being, and moving around. Yeah, just being, just being, being man, <laughs> just being man. Yeah, wonder and wonder and wander, because when you wonder, you're kind of wandering through. Like if you're wondering about something, you have a certain um, set, say. Um, table of things that you're wondering about Curiosity. You, then it's you're also wandering the state through of awe. like wonders and like oh well yeah wow that kind of yeah. wonder yeah well yeah well you wander through that too you know you come across um huge you know like big sky the wonder definitely generates the curiosity mm-hmm there's, there's and, gotta and be a connection it's, it's so big that the brain starts yeah growing new pathways to try and incorporate it all at once that all of it that is so much to take in at once so we have to develop an insight into our existential modes through uh, awakening mindfulness practices. Yeah, allow us to be more and more in t- in the being state. Yeah, instead of the having and being miserable state. Yeah, having. And what's beautiful is you can be in both at once. Yeah, that's the real game. That's the non-dualistic game. It's being that squiggly line between the yin and the yang. The feet is. The, f- the feet are on the land and the sea at once and the body stretches out into the heavens like those old alchemical paintings yep so is the frog frog's got one foot in water one foot on the land nice yeah. nice yeah, that's that's the Amphibian. totem power of the frog mm-hmm. yeah. ah that's cool yeah all right guys well let's uh let's jump back into it here he experienced enlightenment we're going to talk about what that might mean so after his enlightenment, after his awakening, he's walking down the road and people come up to him and his visage has changed. Think about what you think about when you are watching when you see somebody and you know they're in the flow state and they're flowing. And you can that grace and that energy and that the musicality of intelligibility that's playing across their face and their gestures and their motions. And you can't you're, most of it you're only picking up implicitly, but you've got a sense. What's going Oh, that's so beautiful. That's so graceful. That's oh, so much power. And there's a, there's a charismatic, and, and you're just caught up in it. So these men are approaching Siddhartha, and he, he's filled with that. And so they say to him, are you a god? Think about what conditions have to be like where that's a reasonable thing to ask of someone. And he answers very clearly, no, I'm not. Are you some kind of angelic messenger or being? No, I'm not. Are you some kind of prophet? No, I'm not. Are you just a man? No, I'm not. They're frustrated. What are you then? I am awake. That's how he gets his title. He moves from talking about an identity he could have to a fundamental way of being. 
I am awake. He has fully, deeply, the depths I've tried to indicate here, sati, remembered the being mode in a way that isn't an insight about this or that problem, but is a fundamental insight into what it is to be a human being. A systematic set of insights that optimizes your entire being, that triggers and empowers a fundamental transformative experience. So, as a cognitive scientist, especially one who studies the connections between Buddhism and cognitive science, I've become very interested in these kinds of experiences that people have. Me, and I have colleagues and, and collaborators that are also interested in this. Why do people pursue altered states of consciousness? Why is the mindfulness revolution, which is the pursuit of altered states of consciousness, so powerful? Why are we going through the psychedelic revolution right now? Because unlike other therapeutic pharmaceuticals, psychedelics wor work exactly by bringing about an altered state of consciousness. Why is this so powerfully important? Why is it that we're not the only creatures, in fact, that pursue altered states of consciousness? It looks like the more intelligent a creature is, the more it will pursue altered states of consciousness. Caledonian crows will tumble down rooftops in order to make themselves dizzy, which is a risky thing to do, but they do it because they're enjoying the altered state of consciousness. Why is it that, these, that some of these altered states, mystical experiences, certain types of psychedelic experiences within a therapeutic context, we're going to talk about all of this, can bring about and afford such powerful transformations? What is it that's going on there? And here's what's interesting. Sometimes people will have a kind of altered state of consciousness that... In my mind, it, it recapitulates the axial revolution. Look, normally when you have an altered state of consciousness, let's pick up on Siddhartha's metaphor, awakening, waking up. That's in contrast to being asleep, to dreaming. So what happens in your typical state of altered state of consciousness, one that you experience every night? You're dreaming. And when you're in the dream state, you think that that world is real. You interact with it as if real, but when you wake up, you go, aha! That was just a dream. That wasn't real. This is real. This. Normally, when we come out of an altered state of consciousness, we point at it the finger of rejection and say, that isn't real. Oh, I was drunk. That's not real. Oh, I was high. That's not real. But sometimes, people have certain kinds of experiences, altered states of consciousness, in which exactly the opposite occurs. They go into that state and they come back and they say, that was more real. That was really real. And this is less real. Do you see how that's axial? That's like, wait, that higher, higher, why do we call it a higher state of consciousness? That higher state of consciousness, that I had access to the real world. And when I come back, like, like somebody in Plato's cave, I've come back out of the sunlight. 
This, I now realize, is only echoes and shadows. It's less real. In fact, and because of my desire to be in contact with what's real, I'm going to change myself and I'm going to change my world to try and recapture, sati, sati, to remember what that's like. I want to live in greater contact with that really real. And so they start to transform their whole lives and their whole self. The whole agent arena relationship is completely and radically, radically, revolutionarily restructured. This is known as quantum change theory. Bad name, bad name, good theory. People do this. This is, of course, very important for understanding what happened to people like Siddhartha. In fact, most of the world religions that emerge at the Axial Revolution are predicated on the idea that there are higher states of consciousness that should empower, challenge, and encourage us to engage in such quantum transformation, to go through these radical transformative experiences. It's obviously at the core of Buddhism. You experience satora, satori, right? You realize shunyata. It's at the core, right, of Vedanta, when I experience moksha and release. It's at the core of Taoism. I, I, I realize the Tao. So, how is it, right, that these experiences have such authority. But it's, it's not just that they're, they're important historically, right? But at the, they're at the core of the world religions, right? And you, and, you, and you say, well, what about the Western? Like Sufism within Islam and the Christian mystic tradition and Kabbalah, like all of the, all of the world traditions point to these higher states of consciousness that can bring about these radical, modal transformations in our cognition and our very being. But it, and, and that's, 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 that's important enough. But it, it, like when you do surveys, if you look at some of the work that's been done, 30 to 40% of the population has experienced these events. And it's like flow across cultures, language groups, socioeconomic status, gender, pervasive and universal. Not universal in the sense that everybody has it, but universal in the sense that there doesn't seem to be any type, class, or order of human beings that is not capable of experiencing it. So both qualitatively, historically, and quantitatively, scientifically, it's like, this is an important phenomenon. And here's what's really important for our purposes. There's a deep connect... Remember I said before, there's a deep connection between how often you flow, and how meaningful you find your life. That is also the, more radically the case for these states. People who have experienced these higher states of consciousness and undergone these quantum changes, these deep transformational experiences, reliably import, and there's good experimental evidence to support it, that they have had a significant increase in meaning in life. In fact, many people report these experiences as the most significant in their life and that a lot of the meaning of their life is hinged upon these transformations. There are deep connections between awakening and recovering meaning. 
There are deep connections between awakening and insight. As I've, as I've already indicated, we'll come back to see, there's a deep continuity between this kind of insight, mystical experience, and flu, full-blown awakening experience. My lab, we've just finished running uh, with my associate uh, Anderson Todd, my lab director, lab manager, um, uh, Jin Sun Kim, all of my wonderful RAs, um, and they'll show up in the acknowledgement. We just have submitted a paper because we ran an experiment. We did a massive MTurk survey trying to see if there was a relationship between if people have a mystical experience and how meaningful they find their, find their lives. And there is, in fact, a significant relationship between mystical experience and if you have meaning in life. We did a more fine-grained analysis, and this is consonant with the work of Samantha Heinzelman and others, experimental work showing that it's something like a capacity for insight, making sense, which is often called coherence in the literature, that seems to be what's doing all the heavy lifting. So it doesn't really matter, if you'll allow me, so much what the content of your mystical experience is. In fact, very often, there's no content. They're ineffable. But what seems to be happening is you're somehow optimizing your capacity for making sense, both inwardly and outwardly. It's like, it's, it's like what's happening is some improved optimization of this, of anagoge. And people find that deeply meaningful. So there is good reason to believe, I'm not, I'm, I'm not advocating Buddhism here, because I've already pointed out there are similar claims in all of the mystical traditions. And I'm not claiming that those traditions are all identical. I'm not Aldous Huxley. But there seems to be some deep truths here about the nature of attention, the nature of mindfulness, and the enhancement of the ability to enter into these higher states of consciousness that can significantly alleviate existential distress and bring about a pervasive and profound kind of optimization of our insight and our capacity for finding our lives meaningful. And that would be being able to do all of those things, right? Alleviate the existential anxiety, create a systematic kind of insight, a transformation of agents in arena that recovers the being mode, forge transformation. I mean, isn't that the core of meaning? And, and the ability to do it, wouldn't that be the core of wisdom? So what I want to do is I want to continue on and I want to explore this. What's going on with mystical experiences? What's going on with these higher states of consciousness? Why are psychedelics coming back into the center of the cognitive science investigation? We've got to talk about consciousness. We've got to talk about altered states of consciousness. We've got to talk about higher states of consciousness and transformative experience. And what is the knowing that's going on here? Because it's no knowing of words. There's no words. There's no content. Pure consciousness event. You're not conscious of anything. This is, everything's the same. It's just, there's the resonant at one minute, the flowing. What kind of knowing is it? That's what we're going to take a look at next time. Thank you very much.
awesome. What's up, guys? I'd love to hear what people are thinking of this so far. That last, jeez, 15, 20 minutes is amazing. I've got a little stick figure storyline here that I'm quite amused. So after Enlightenment, Sid's walking down the street, and he comes across a bunch of guys, and they just they see him glowing. You know, he's just glowing, glowing right? Yeah, you know, yeah. and they can see this in him, and they're like, that. are you are you a god? And he's like, glowing. no. Are you a messenger from God? No. no. Are, are, are you a prophet? No. no. Are you a man? No. <laughs> I am awake. And I should have put a little are guy. Are you just a man? Mu- no. No, no. I'm no. A, what are, I'm what awake. are you? Yeah, I am awake. Yeah. Uh, from an identity one can have, from association with reality, through the idea of an identity that one can have, to just being awake and aware of that uh, process that we have as humans to develop an identity and then identify with that self-image that we've developed and be offended if that self-image is disparaged and all of that. No, he's, he's aware and awake to all the processes and is just here. And re- he has remembered, recovered the being mode. It's not an insight of this or that, but what it is to be a human being. So mindfulness is a system, set of insights that brings about a transcendent, transformative transformative experience and uh, brought about by mindfulness revolution. And now today also, along with the mindfulness revolution occurring, a psychedelic revolution is occurring altered states of consciousness are increasingly being sought um not just the crows that he mentioned uh, pretty but much dolphins a, do this with pufferfish and pretty they much pass it around anything that can eat rotten fruit that for uh, sure reindeer uh, pretty much of muscaria yeah, mushrooms yeah. until they think they can fly and they're and cats to like cat around everywhere you know um cats and catnip great yeah. example well and the feeling of more real than real and then when you come back down, mm. it's like, like equivalently speaking, like when you're asleep, like you said, you beat, you know, when you're dreaming, you yeah. interact with it as if it's real, but then you wake up and it's more real. Well, this, the next step is, is more real than real. Than real. And when us, you come yeah. back down, there's the urge to like, well, like, how do I continually exist in mm-hmm. that real realness yes how can i tune myself to be closer to that and 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 ever more in concert with and that dance with and you know that would you know that type of thing that that's the axial revolution within yourself recapitulated through the individual yes and then a lot of other people plato's allegory a lot of other people you know created you know their different practices to get to that realer than real state Mm -hmm. and you know we're doing it now with you know different psychedelics um sure and now clinically and scientifically opposed to just you know hanging out in a house and calling yourselves uh, oh yeah using it therapeutically and psychotherapeutic well and you can make measurements and you can see like you know so the information is very tightly coupled with itself like Mm -hmm. you can see an individual you know how much you give them you know how much water they have their heart rate all this reliably have a trained person that can move them through these experiences they're seeing high 60 to 80 percent recidivism rates from addictions Mm -hmm. uh post healing of true actual healing uh integrating understanding of and at the very depth of uh of 
very traumatic experiences as well that people go through. So the, the he, legitimate curing of PTSD in a high rate of individuals and uh, addictions and so forth, um, the therapeutic setting is powerful. And when combined with meditative and mindfulness practices, you really do, I believe, ratchet up the power of these plant medicines, which I believe to be sacraments. I believe mm. that we should approach these things with a sense of reverence so that, as something sacred. Yeah, well, drug abuse isn't uh, using drugs. It's abusing drugs, kids. For sure. Yeah, Yeah, right? (laughs) Indeed. Uh, Yeah, so we have these terms of Satori and Shunyati in Buddhism, Moksha and Vedanta. And then the Sati state, which that I am awake is the, The I guess, the the ultimate state we should shoot for is the being awake. Yeah, to live in ever greater contact and that dance of relevance realization what, and it's the high, reciprocal knowing and relation with reality it's the highest understanding you can reality. have of your reality like reality because we're seeking to understand and participate within our reality it's the highest level of meaningfulness yeah. and it also is the most generative of symbiotic states of being with one another in our larger communities and within ourselves. And and not a stationary state either. Like no, the idea of the no. state is not like this plateau you're at. It, you move through it. Yeah. And, you know, perhaps you could even fall out of it. Right. Well, um, you, you know, we're initiating yeah. r- radical transformative mm-hmm. practices to be able to deepen this insight and this capacity for being mm-hmm. in, in this state of non-duality. So, yeah, Sufism, Christ, uh, Christian mystics have gotten into this. Kabbalists got into this. Everybody... All of the ancient wisdom schools understood this capacity that human beings have and puts us in in the highest state of communion, potential for co-creation, potential for harmony, uh, resonance, higher levels of being. Just think about how profound of of a concept to come across as like, say, imagine in a world where you didn't have the idea of higher states of consciousness. And then awakening into that realization, there are higher states of consciousness. And, well, we formed religions and practices around this. Yeah, because when you look at the ineffable, like the people that left the cave in Plato's allegory, and they mm-hmm. see the sun, this thing that gives all the life and the growth and the creation and the potential of this planet and this existence, they actually see that this is the true light. This is, and you can't even look at it. It's so overwhelmingly bright. That's our sense of the ineffable. We, we cannot quite get to that itch. And we all so we, have, we, we have the capacity of having these higher states of consciousnesses. It, mm-hmm. You know, like we can, we can experientially. Every single person can do it. Not everybody does do it, but we yeah. all can do it. We can. It, everybody has access yeah. to this. Well, and I think yeah. like universally available. The invention of like, you know, beautiful churches and mosques and stuff like that is one way to help the people who go to that church get into that. Mm hmm that that's a higher state of consciousness yeah you know, to that, oh wow together yeah. of in, in in that transcendent communion together yeah because big beautiful churches aren't big and like just big and beautiful because it's you like know, philosophy is the fellow fellow practice mm-hmm. of wisdom together you know the love the love of wisdom and fellowship is the pra- pra- practice of philosophy it requires other people we are social beings, so yeah. it's an inner process and it's an outer process at once. Again, oh. over and over. Hmm. You know, like we. I like this idea of the really realer than real, yeah. and it reminded me of that term that they had in the movie Cloud Atlas. You ever see yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. The, tr- the true, true. 
Yeah, true, that true. Make, that sounds very Taoist to me. I like that. Well, there's the concept of you know, there's what's true and then what's actually true. Mm-hmm. Um, in that sense, the true, true. Yeah, know, it had different connotations. The real true at different points is really yeah. powerful. Yeah. You ain't bullshit me, are you? No, it's true, true. No, it's, it's the true, it's, true. <laughs> um, so, awakening, so, yeah. recovery, and insight are tied together. Mm-hmm. This little thing. recovering meaning, gaining insights, awakening—they're they're tied together in a dance. And this flowing state that we can achieve is increasing our sense of meaningfulness in life. So the insight, making sense of coherence, that's an interesting word. Because, mm-hmm. well, when you're incoherent, like you've been knocked incoherent, you yeah, can right. no longer make you're sense. You're tuned out. You can yeah. no longer make sense. You're not able to make things or coherent. Or people can't make sense of you. Yeah. Um, so coherent would you know, coherence is like tuning uh, yes. right into that that spot well and if something's coherent it, it makes sense like your argument is coherent i mm-hmm. i made your argument it make fits sense together i may not agree it makes but structural it makes functional yeah. organizational sense, sense yes. yeah it, uh, it chimes mm-hmm. when you're really hitting it so making meaning this so in, uh, ineffable experiences allow us to optimize our capacity for making sense and that capacity for making sense allows us to be meaning makers evermore increasing our capacity to solve this meaning crisis Mm -hmm. significant decreases exist what what did i write here Mm. I don't know. It's incoherent. This is incoherent. <laughs> <laughs> this, this sentence is lacking yeah, coherent. Okay, yeah, we experienced a significant way. increase or decrease in stress, uh, existential stress. Mm. Oh, yeah. Well, it's when we we like meaning, we like things to make sense, and capacity for transcendence, oh. and the tuning the two of those together to find that middle path. Continually optimizing and attending, being attentive to that middle path. It's a very loving process. It's a very careful, full of care kind of process. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Interested. It's that interrelation with the divine, the the law of bestowal, the law of reception. Well, we become the law of bestowal and we give back unto the source of bestowal itself. And we complete the circuit. Now we're one with mm. the divine. Even as it lives through us, we're giving that experience back to us. So it's giving us experience. We're receiving it. We give it back. Consciously. Uh, with a sense of love and, and reverence and gratitude. and The actual, like, this is the experience that you created. Oh, mysterious, wondrous universe. Now the question <laughs> is, is, you know. God source all one whatever you want to call it the deepest question is why did god why it is like you know if 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 it is true there's an omniscient deity that's the only one at its level why that created everything in the universe why and then beyond that why hinduism and and other other schools they (laughs) even delineate this like beyond that highest level entity that has a personality to it in a sense there is or and then personalities below it but beyond that is the absolute 
And that absolute is the always has been, always will be pure generative, pure love. God knows <laughs> what that is. But that's that's another layer. That's correct. God that's knows. The transcended, only yeah, God, God knows. knows. Only God knows. The absolute, only the absolute knows. Mm, and yeah. God, of course, is synonymous with that thing, but God is also the personal, person, personified aspect of that thing. Yeah, well, it, it helps to have an interface to interact with. And, mm-hmm. you know, we, we like ones that either work mechanically with us or look like us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it, if you have a personal robot, you'd probably want it to be humanoid, not some like... Yeah, one is fixated on the idea of there not being a god because they're still burned by the institutionalized church's version of the Christian or story even, and enactment of the religion. Yeah, even just the idea that, you know, the, the, man sitting, that. the man sitting in the clouds yeah, with the finger thing. Don't forget thing. the music of the spheres. You can yeah. still have a sense of wonder for this thing, and the idea of God can be much bigger than just a guy on a cloud in the sky. That's well, judgmental. That's that's not the idos of the structural functional organization. Yeah. That's just a metaphor we use to point at something. that Because, yes. like, you can't define yes, the, the idos Alpha of and God Omega, because we can't see everything. This omnipresent, infinite yeah. source of love and wisdom and existence and, and, reality and all the wrath and evil and everything else that's in the and world too everything's yin and the yang. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well you yeah. know you can't have up without down you yeah. can't have the light without dark you can't have love without the symptoms of the lack thereof yeah. and so forth you know if you take the yin, yin yang and you spin it it creates a double nested toroid so it's a donut so nice. um so god is that's like right. god yeah. is the ultimate donut because it has a it has a donut it's, it's ring like that's that the small ring on the inside. The black hole where it meets itself and then it comes and turns back inside out. And so, well, it does it it does it doubly too. So yeah, it's, so it's, it's like a figure eight in three D. Yeah, it's well, it's not even just like this. It's like this with another one of these things that's small inside of it. So that's the, oh, yeah, the yeah, in no, and yeah, the out yeah, too. Yeah, it is, yes, so it's a double donut. So it's that's two donuts, one on top yeah. of the other. So it's yeah. Well, no, it's yeah. inside of it's each a other. Figure eight in it's, 3D. Uh, it's, it's, <laughs> well, it's not even that. There's it's some cool. There's and some open at the same time. And there's some cool animations. I've and, seen them. Yeah, they're and awesome. I, I've seen um, a guy. Can't find the video anymore because you know it gets scrubbed from YouTube or taken off the internet or whatever they do. I've but seen he's, this when stars explode. Like there's initially he, that. There's pfft, there's a guy who does this with page. plasma. Like Whoa. in little jars with magnet, like certain magnet arrays and stuff yeah. like that, and he'll create these shapes, and he'll you know, tie them to like what certain stellar and other phenomenon we see. What it looks like, and the idea is it isn't a like everything is it basically has a north side and a south side, you know, potential wise, but it's not a bar magnet. It's actually two bowl shaped magnets where like the inside is north on one and the outside is south on the other but then the outside is north on one and the inside south so they're inverse of each other with each other moving around and different sizes and actually the orbital theories or not or orbital theories for that you know for atoms instead of being this orbital theory but like bleb orbital theory something of he can replicate the shape of atoms in plasma Hmm. As well, cool. using these bowl-shaped magnets is really, really weird. But Whoa. yeah, oh, that's cool. And that's just you know, that's in the, I guess the physical aspect of the universe. But I would assume that 
the mind and spirit aspect of the universe also has similar patterns discreetly tucked within it. Mm-hmm. Well, this source of infinite, the source of omnipresence, whatever it is. I once heard this theory, I think it was Nassim Haramein that proposed that there's a singularity at the center of everything. So back to the Tauruses, mm-hmm. at the center of every atom, there's a singularity. You just you get to this point where the closer you get, the more there information there is. So it's that it's like a collapsing of a black hole that then perhaps expresses out on another side in another universe. I've heard that. I, I, I'm not a big fan of that one. I don't know how one. it works, um, but, but that idea of that Taurus at the center of everything yeah. being perhaps what generates gravitational force that holds us together, holds every atom together. Um, it's why it attracts all of the stars and everything around every star. It's Because every star has a singularity in the center of it. Every atom... You know, it's, it's so it just goes down and it goes all the way up, perhaps. And then well, I, I think there are there we are looking for a center point to something like within an, an atom. You know, we thought, okay, well, the nucleus yeah. is that, but, but then that's the why it's described as an atom is like a pinprick through <laughs> a hole through time and space. I think it's 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 potential, it's potential. that actualizes itself because the electron it's, well, is it's just emergence. a potential. Yeah, and we don't know what emergence is. But emergence, yeah. it's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. And the further down you go, you you know, like we've tried to think, you know, like quarks, which quark theory works really well for like, you know, dealing with like real life. But I, I don't think that's perfect either, you know, and quarks can have, you know, uh, upspin, downspin, left spin, right spin, charm spin, and strange. And mm-hmm. that's the best way to think about it is like, you know, up this would be downspin because the way you're looking at it's downspin upspin would be this way strange spin i think is more like this Mm -hmm. and then charm is the other way but it's just how a potential potential expresses itself with other things as well so like the spin when you measure it it's only in that position when you, when measure, you measure it, it but moment. then yeah. there's an equal chance it can be in the downspin right so it's position the next time matrix. yeah so every time you do it you'll get a different result yeah it's, um, it's short and, so it, it, short and i think it's just thing. collapsing potentials yeah. potentials collapsing down and, and in groups and at, you know the more things you get together the more they make what we seem as solid mm-hmm. and potential goes actual but there's, you know, the further you go in, the problem is we don't have the ability to measure that, so we can't look at it. And then with our minds, when we go in through math, there's a point where the math breaks, too. Mm-hmm. There's a smallest point that you can't get any smaller than in math, in, in any measurement, in anything else. There's that point. And then they're smaller than that. Yeah, they're still going to be smaller <laughs> than that. Yeah, you can't it's get like, past it. So, yeah, if it really is a singularity, if it really is infinite in as it is out... Yeah. Then the whole so thing you, really you, is I guess you could call it a singularity, but it wouldn't be like endless. the singularity inside of an atom. It would be, yeah. it would be the potential the for something to happen. The sing- singular too. potential to happen, mm-hmm. and then, well, have you ever heard of the the shared electron theory? Like, there's only one electron in the universe, and it's just sharing its potential with wow. every other atom. Oh, yeah, like that. it's it's a fun one to get into. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, everything is just yeah. this interconnected thing. There is just this one universe. Well, how do you explain the like the like quantum entangling where you can entangle two 
Well, well, that see that it's yeah, technically one particle, like but it's split. through itself. Yeah, yeah, it's it's hard to imagine, but it's like this field of of potential that is everywhere mm-hmm. at once, and always has been and always will be. And so, it, it, there's no matter of traveling between one point and another point. Those all those points are existing within this field of what everything from Taoism to Buddhism to Christianity mm-hmm. recognizes as something that is ultimately absolutely aware. And loving. And that's beautiful. God, I hope it is. Because, you know, <laughs> if this is one of those things where you die and it's just like a hell afterlife and there is no, like, anything else. It's, oh, no, you go to hell and you get thrown in the uh, recycler and we grind you up for eternity and then spit you back out for so no reason. For hundreds of years have been coming back oh. unassociated from one another and telling the same stories. Yeah. Where it's they're very much that sense of ultimate belonging. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. And yeah. No, I, I have faith, but yeah, I like to is. giggle about it, and I like I like stories Oof. of like yeah. Well, I went I mean, to hell to be and intellectually aware of it and to really directly experience it to the point of grokking it and it being realer than real, like for yeah. real, for real within oneself. That recognition, that is, those are two different things. Well, ima- imagine like so, like we can't have that experience, and that's so wonderful. Yeah, imagine so like if like say in the psychedelic realm you can have a realer than real experience but you were not in a place where it was a comfortable felt loving experience and it oh, was yeah. in the negative frame oh sure that and, can happen and that's also where it's like that's why it's you, so important you, to you, you can prep your mind before going prep your in. set and setting and also yeah, your, your understanding like, and I, the setting and the environment I, you're going to be in i've never had a bad trip and i've had bad things happen around me and to mm-hmm. myself on trips you got to be around people you absolutely but, trust you but don't you want can also predictable things happening it's got to be a controlled well, environment that's well, safe screw and all that stuff you no yourself paranoia. have to be mentally well, fortified that's what I'm saying. mindset and the setting you're yeah. in yeah so the minds yeah i was just because like, well that. that's where the term set and setting comes from you should always work on your set and setting if you're going to engage in a practice like this and so that you can be in the most healthy psychological state like not having come out of any well, breakups it, it, or traumatic experiences well, even, recently even even beyond that having psychotechnologies uh, practices yeah, and meditation and train to it prayerfully reverentially um, with a sense of well, that's what your yeah. medicine man was supposed to do. They were supposed to help you, like initiate you into it to this. A whole and, other level. You know, and, and I think that's that's the next wave. I hope for people because yeah. well, people are just going out and doing these things for fun or curiosity or to work on something in, in particular. That's all well and good, but there's a whole other level yeah. of transcendent communion and deep, deep life changing, transformative realizations that can occur. Yeah, radical shifts. Yeah. And and yeah. and there's dangers with it. So like everything, even Just you know, things should be used wisely, legally, mm-hmm. always as possible. And well, and and also you don't want to guidance. You don't want to build your ego. In a safe place, and yeah, you, you want to diminish the ego. The ego. So, you, yeah, you, you've got to understand. Like just like life can magnify everything in life can magnify our egos. It can also These are super powerful tools that really heighten our access to awareness, to consciousness, and the constant creative playfulness of reality itself. And engaging with these things should not be approached lightly by any means. They should be approached as something truly sacred. And I think if you develop a ritual around it, and also you come watch out with way. dependency too, because too many times I've heard, yeah. "I can't become spiritual." Like I only feel spiritual when I do this, and they're not. <laughs> no. They're just there to open the window. It's not food. To the spiritual it's life. medicine. Yeah, it's medicine, not food. Yes, eat food for yes. food. But well, it's people make medicine. people make. We, we do this and everything. 
We do we do this like, a lot in life. We're we're mistaken of having mode for the being mode again. Well, there, and, we? and like what what John Verveke's talking about and what we're talking about doing. This is food, mm-hmm. and then we use the medicine to continue the healing. But the food nourishes it, it grows us. Yes, and then the medicine helps us expand us. So, yes. Yeah, so we're and, not going and, into total self denial, and we're not going into. And you don't necessarily need to use substances either to get there because certain foods will make you feel certain yeah. ways. Yeah. Um, Everything so. is psychedelic. These are particularly potent aspects of reality. But, I mean, me talking right now is affecting your mind. That is mind expanding. Everything that we ingest, see, hear, taste, eat, literally, is affecting our minds. The chemicals of the foods that we eat affect how much water we have in our system is affecting hey. our the ritual, of e- like the ritual of eating there a certain are magical fruits that are very yeah, yeah go ahead on the ritual the ritual of eating foods mm-hmm. at certain times with people just doing mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. that's a ritual that that's a life bonding that makes you feel better mm-hmm. rises you up with see together and if you incorporate that with you the know, eating and sharing together is a very peace making situation too because food is something that we will fight over when there's not enough around so we, like in poor places the way that people will come together and commune and pray and treat the food and each other as sacred and then all share equally even if they have just one bowl of rice together is is part of that ritual that treating this life giving food as something sacred and treating each other as something sacred yeah but yeah so thinking about thinking about these things and doing these things that's the food Mm -hmm. and then going deeper into having an enlightening experience is the medicine so every day you should be consuming food and then you should also be taking your medicine whether it's going deep into your meditation or Mm -hmm. movement practices you know that end to lift you up into these but you can't always be in a transcending experience you, you can't live your life that way but you can get yourself as close as possible in this nice perfect balance which is the food and yeah you know. and which you can be in a transcendent yeah. it could just deepens and deepens Actually, one can be in a transcendent state so while observing the body operate normally in the world we eat bread and drink wine in the christian but you don't have to stay up on the mountain that's for sure in the christian religion we eat bread and drink wine for communion well Mm -hmm. and the the bread is supposed to be the body Mm -hmm. it nourishes the body it's the things that nourish the existence and then the wine is the sacrament that you know if you drink enough of it does the head stuff but in the sense of that's the medicine you've got the the body of what you need to be a well-rounded individual that has a good firm grasp of reality and then you have the medicine on top that keeps built you know helps you build out and above and outward up and out yes Mm -hmm. Uh, it's just interesting you know it's like well why why bread and wine what's with that you know like it's a weird death cult you're eating your deity ancient times we know that they infused the wines in those regions with different plant mm -hmm. medicines and it wasn't until the last few five six seven centuries that these were being outlawed in various nations over time. And I think the last law uh, regarding psychedelics and brews was in Germany that was taken out whatever root or some psychedelic root or whatever it was that was still in some of the beer that they were drinking. But well, this, yeah, the, it's an ancient practice, and they've even found traces of the various substances um, in 
like bases and things like that that they found in ancient Egyptian <laughs> through on up to now. So the, yeah, these were deeply a part of our of our worshipful practices and treating them that way. And and as you mentioned, we must be wary of over reliance and addiction and fixation. We must utilize these things and treat them as holy. They're there to help us open the door to have major radical transformative shifts or uh, soft, slow awakenings into that deep abiding state of oneness with the in and the outward, the phasing in and the up and the down and all all of these processes at once being in that middle path, the attenuation, the optimization of that process. Uh, all of these things, it's, it's how we orient ourselves towards it. So whether it be our practice of meditation or a practice of using the plant medicine, I think these things should be married together. And we'll be there much closer to riding that, that line. It's all about the inward direction. Outward, inward, yes. Inward. Yeah, it's the union of the in and the out. Well, and, uh, it, That's the yin and the yang, because it's not just the two interrelated opposites. These have a piece of one and the other, and they're also the whole circle and the squiggly line. Oh, which way are you going? It's one thing. I'm going that way. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Intward. <What? laughs> Intward. Oh, boy. Intward ho. Yes, Intward ho. Well, uh, next episode will be a continue Intward. Deepening, oh. deepening our explorations, our journeys, journeys yeah. through the this awakening from the meaning crisis, journeys into outward, Intward. Intward. I like that. I'm gonna. Start, yeah, I'm like gonna that. start That's using it all the time, like it's actually a word. That's gonna be so an people are like, in, in word, yes, and it's uh, I N T W A R D, right? Uh, yeah. So if you could you combined it like the the T of out and uh, yeah, and the N is like can be an upside down U, like and the I can have like a circle around it, so you can make it like a Taurus for the U. Well, you know, N is a two letter word, out is a three letter word. Just stick N over top of it, and Intward we go. Intward we go. Ho. Into our awakening flow. <laughs> we row, row, row our boats down this river flow. Whoops, I wrote Intward instead of Intward. There we go. Ah, uh, for French. Intward. Don't be an Intward. <laughs> All right, Intwads. Yeah. Actualizers, face shifters, transcenders, meaning makers. We're going to sign off now. I know it's getting late. This has been a long one. Mm. Yeah. Three hours officially. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, another three-hour episode. Thank you guys oh, so much boy. for tuning in and joining us on this episode of a Actualize podcast covering John Verbeke's Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. It's such a mouthful. How about we just call it Wednesday night? Thanks for joining Wednesday us on night Wednesday live. night. Actualize live. Love you guys. Talk to you soon. Meow.